You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to the 42 cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I am your host, Nathan, and we have another great episode lined up for you. We're going to talk about Marvel Comics. Yeah, we're going to talk about the whole thing. I realize that in a single episode of a podcast, it's a really hard topic to tackle, but it's kind of supposed to be kind of an overview of uh, Marvel from the beginning to now. And you can let us know once you hear it how we did. This is another one that was recorded prior to quarantine. It's one of those ones that's kind of been hanging out there. I wanted to do it as part of the 80th anniversary of Marvel. And of course, a year has gone by and now it's the 81st anniversary of Marvel, you know, a couple months ago. And so, you know, the release schedule is what it is. But the good thing is the backlog is getting cleared out and there aren't as many of these episodes hanging out back there. But this is one of those. So that is what it is. And I realize that as I'm recording this, we've had a kind of bad couple of months between December and January with the release schedule. The good news is that that's all going to change once episode 100 is out by the time you're listening to this because Ben is pre-editing a whole bunch of episodes after episode 100. But because episode 100 had so many moving parts, there were so many things that I had to get lined up, so many different recordings that had to be spliced together, so many different things that had to be edited... It has really taken up a lot of my bandwidth in getting all of that put together, and so that's why there's been a lot of delays in the podcast. But now you should be in a point where the releases are coming weekly like they should, and hopefully we're going to have six, seven, maybe even eight episodes banked up when episode 100 gets released. So what I'm basically saying is this is episode 104. Expect this to continue for at least several more weeks where there shouldn't be a single missed week. And I'm hoping that if we can build up the momentum and get enough front-loaded that Ben can just keep chugging along, and then, you know, I only step in when I need to to do the odd episode, then we can really get this thing solidified and where it's just weekly on a regular basis. And we won't have another one as big as episode 100 until episode 200. And so, you know, maybe then we'll have another delay or whatever while we get that all worked out. But, you know, that's that's my hope. That's what I'm working for. So <laughs> we'll we'll see how that all turns out. You know, and news for me watched Wonder Woman 84, and I think I kind of fall in line with how my general perception of the general public's opinion of it is, is it's not as good as the first one, but, uh, you know, you'll get to that when we do our Wonder Woman episode. You'll hear the full thoughts on the movie. Finished watching Quantum Leap with Beth, and that was really great. That was me trying to show her a lot of this series that I grew up with, and that's really the last one that I wanted to show her from my childhood. So over 15 years of marriage, she's kind of been caught up with all the stuff I watched when I was young. And now we're watching a lot of things together that we haven't seen before. Finished season two of The Mandalorian, working on season three of Discovery right now. 
We actually started a show called The Flight Attendant on HBO Max since we paid for a month to do uh, Wonder Woman. I'm a fan of Kaylee Cuoco from The Big Bang Theory, and she's really been hyping this series of hers. It's a weird comedy murder mystery kind of thing. It's kind of hard to describe. Its tone is definitely dark comedy, but there's also some suspense, you know, mystery kind of elements to it. So it's an interesting show, and I like Kaylee, and so we're kind of watching that. But yeah, otherwise, not a whole lot going on. I keep waiting for Netflix to send us the disc for Tenet. But that's one that it keeps telling us is a long wait time. I'm sure a lot of the people who get Netflix discs selected that because it's one of the few new movies that came out in 2020. So I don't have anything to report on that yet. So yeah, that's where we are right now. I'm not sure if I said it before we saw Bill and Ted face the music, but that was like a month ago. So I probably said that already in one of these intros. But anyway that's where i stand right now still hoping that the convention scene picks up in the second half of this year that we all get vaccinated and things return to some semblance of normal so i'm hopeful for chicago tardis c2e2 this year has been moved back to december so that's a possibility of a con that i could go to although it's only going to be a couple of weeks after chicago tardis so i'm not sure i'd want to do another con that quickly so we'll see how that all turns out. I am kind of curious how the con scene will be in 2022 with all these cons now moving back to the second half of 2020, if that's going to create a problem in, I'm sorry, in the second half of 2021, if that's going to create a problem in 2022 when all these cons now, do they move themselves back so then their next con is only four or five months after their previous con? Will they be able to do that? Will they all want to continue running where they are right now? In which case, won't there be a glut of cons? Will they skip a year? Like, for instance, the C2E2, which is traditionally in February, March timeframe, does a December con. Would they just skip 2022 and then go back to 2023 being in sort of a March timeframe because it's only a little over a year? I don't know. But anyway. Um, so, <laughs> deep thoughts that I'm having right now. But yeah, that's all that I have to talk about right now. Don't want to go on too long with a sort of monologue. So let's just join the podcast already in progress. So first up, uh, he is a guy that absolutely loves comics. Um, he's been on several of our movie podcasts, and that is the wonderful Will Price. How are you doing, Will? Greetings, programs. I'm fantastic. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine, thanks. Did Marvel do the adaptation for Tron? Do we know Uh, that? I I believe they did. Okay, yeah. I mean, it would make sense because they were, you know, really big back then. So, you know, they had the Star Wars license at that point. So, you know. I'll I'll have to Google that for you. I'll, <laughs> yeah. I can confirm. Yeah, I just I just I was going off the cuff, but let me sure. look that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Now I'm curious because I just thought of that. I was like, hey, we're talking Marvel. It's like, hey, did they do the comic tie-in for Tron? Because you know, usually those kinds of movies get the comic tie-in. Sure. I mean, they did Kiss. Why wouldn't they not do Tron? Right. right? <laughs> oh God, Kiss. Yes. Um, but how have you been doing, Will? I'm doing well, sir. I. Uh recent uh bucket list item checked off my life i went i made the uh the soldier and the religious journey to uh galaxy's edge at walt disney world mm. so that was uh amazing in every sense of the word mm-hmm. so it was just fantastic i saw the pictures oh my gosh i can't we don't have enough time to go into how incredible it was uh all i can say is i teared up more than once <laughs> and if you know it's worth 
it's not cheap, of course, but uh, but it is most definitely worth the trip. It's good to hear because uh, everything that I've been hearing is, oh, they're not making the numbers they expected and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I'm glad to hear that it's uh, that it's, um, you know, worth it. Yeah, forget all that. I mean, like, and I've had I've heard some criticism that, you know, there's only one ride open so far, you know, just the, uh, um, you know, smugglers run where you pot the Falcon. You know, the other ride, Rise of Resistance, doesn't open until until uh, December. But uh, I mean, to me, that's that's minor you know, back burner to the overall experience of the entire land. You know, you walk, you walk into that area of Hollywood studios and it's, it's 100% immersion. Like you don't see or hear anything outside of, of galaxy's edge. You know, you, you're, you're, it's just, it's full sensory overload of star Wars. You know, you're hearing sound effects of animals and, and ships and John Williams original score and, you know, cast members are all in character. There's actual characters running around, stormtroopers, Kylo, Ray, Chewie. I mean, and it takes place in present day. You know, between episodes eight and nine chronologically, and it's. I mean, it's it's a complete experience. Um, but yeah, man, it's fantastic. Very very cool. Uh, yeah. Anything else uh, go on since the last time you were on? No, not really. Just beyond that, working and living. You know, yep. now uh, now I'm broke from Disney and got to pay all that off. So, uh, <laughs> you know, no, no, no time or finances for anything else. Really. All right, yeah, time to make up for Dragon Con, all right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, it's good to have you back on the show, Will. Good to be here, sir. All right, next up, he is our resident Conan expert. He is a film critic extraordinaire, and that is the manic Mark Finn. How are you doing, Mark? Excelsior true believers. This is it's not Stanley. I I fooled you, the internet. <laughs> you thought it was Stan, but it's not because he's dead. Hey, oh. how are you doing, Nathan? I, I'm, I'm too sorry. Soon. I'm too good. soon. Yeah, too soon. Too soon. <laughs> it's too soon. It's it's only been almost a year. Yeah, how are you, Nathan? But it's Stan. I, I'm uh I'm here. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I know. I, I've I've had a bit of a struggle lately. Um, you have, you have, you have. Uh, your travails have been uh, noted, and uh, if I had not been uh, hip deep in my own nonsense, uh, I would have reached out to you and said, "Hey, let's um let's go run away together and join the circus." <laughs> That'd be fun. I bet they have apes. Oh yeah, I'm. Oh yeah, if they don't, uh, I I have a suit. <laughs> so uh, yeah, how have you been doing, Mark? It's been, uh, it's been interesting. Uh, you know, I've been, I've, I've been trying to sort of reorient my, uh, professional writing career and that has been, uh, somewhat derailed by all of my ongoing health stuff, but, uh, I am, uh, doing some more, um, stuff on my blog for the, uh, gaming stuff, gaming site. Uh, we're about to branch out into a new gentleman nerds podcast, uh, which is going to be all about gaming. And, uh, I am currently working on my Finn's top five lists for the October slash Halloween slash horror movie season. So I can't really say I'm not too you know uh covered up i feel like i'm just at the right amount of covered up okay well that's good um uh, but something i, I want to make sure that i say is thank you for whatever you said to ben or or whatever you did thank you because he has been like the greatest 
person that you know to help out with the podcast ever um well yes ben is uh he he is he is very quietly he's like the world's quietest batman you know like 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 he just he swoops in and does all kinds of amazing stuff yeah he's he's a really good guy and uh i don't know that i said anything other than uh, you know, that I work on this podcast ever so often and, and, you know, Nathan's got a lot on his plate. I don't even think I volunteered. I think he might've just gotten out of into his head cause that's how he is. Yeah, no, it's, you know it's, what I mean? he's been amazing. So yeah, thank you for, for somehow you mentioned the 42 cast to him. However you mentioned it to him, he, he has been, uh, he has been wonderful and a huge help in getting these episodes out. So, so thank you well, for that. that. Is- that's fantastic. Uh, I am. Um, I'm. I'm glad that you guys uh, got together. All right. Yeah. So. Um, so yeah. Anything. Uh, so. So you mentioned the stuff that uh, that you've been that's been going on for you. Um, any any cons or anything in your future? Um. Not per se. I don't really have. Uh. Uh. uh you know who I'm looking at right now? Yeah. Uh, Joe Crow has joined the uh, the podcast. Well, uh, a new challenger on, has entered on video, no less. Yeah. <laughs> Joe, can you see my face? Hang on, I'm looking at it right now. Wait, wait well, is that your face? Wait, well, it's 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 one of it's one of the two. <laughs> I'm seeing a face. It's probably well, it may be mine. Hold on, let me let me see if you, if it goes away now. No, that's probably no. You probably see me now for sure. What uh, is his face? <laughs> Hi, Joe. Hello! Oh, look who it is! I'm so excited. Mark, <laughs> Mark I have not. Went, why? Why have we not spoken? Come on. Um, I am going to blame Nathan for that. Ah. He keeps me. He keeps me in the basement and only brings me out for podcasts. So I, I, I get that 100. percent Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. Um, that voice that you heard, as we already said, is Joe Crow. How are you doing, Joe? Fabulous. Very good. Yeah, I know you just came back from a trip recently. Oi. Yeah, I was working at a trade show in Detroit, Michigan. Mm. It was delightful. There's no sweet tea. <laughs> I don't recommend it. <laughs> and then you came back to a house with uh, with no way in, right? Yeah, true, true. Uh, my, my daughter, um, so I, 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 you know, called the family and I said, well, I forgot my house key, but they were, they were in school Friday during the day. And my daughter said, oh, I, le- I left you a way in. She left me <laughs> the basement window open. <laughs> yeah, I saw the so, picture. <laughs> did, did you squeeze in? Oh, I squeezed in. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. I scared the cat to death. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I just want to say in defense of your daughter that I think she is a lot smarter than the average teenager because she opened the window and did not put a brick in front of the closed window to say smash glass. <laughs> See that could have gone that could have been a lot worse, man. You could you could have had a lot more to deal with than you wanted to. Agreed. Agreed. And see, I had I had visions of like Home Alone, where you go into the window and you know <laughs> stuff falls on your head or whatever. <laughs> I'm, 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 I will not put that past her. Christmas is coming up. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. It's give you know it's homecoming season, right? <laughs> Let yeah. her settle in. You know, that's more of that's more of a spring formal kind of a deal. It really is. 
<laughs> so, so, Joe, besides getting locked out of your house and going to Detroit and, and lacking for sweet tea, uh, anything uh, anything exciting going on? Uh, let's see. Hmm. I I watched the new episode of Titans this morning. That that's that's really oh, that's cool. that's the extent of my joy at this moment. Okay, yeah. that's fine. Well, you're just coming off the Dragon Con high, so you know. I'm still in recovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That that show takes. I it's, I know I have a lot of friends that work on that show, uh, including including Joe. And what I have noticed that it takes like about three months to ramp up to get to it, and then when you're there, you go into a sort of a cultural black hole. We're like, <laughs> I just see things coming out. I don't see anything going in. And then and then and then somewhere like like around Wednesday, like people start popping back in on facebook okay i'm alive <laughs> i made it out i'll be this way for another okay let's talk at christmas <laughs> and it just it's, it's six months uh, here, up and here down. comes well here comes the con crud if you sleep yeah, during dragon con you're doing it wrong so you have to recover afterwards clearly <laughs> oh my gosh i mark we gotta get you there we, we gotta get you there at some point I will make you a promise. Uh, the promise is this. I will one day be there. Uh, I know. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I can't do it right now, but um, there's always a possibility uh, it, once Kathy uh, gets past all this stuff that we yeah. will road trip to Atlanta together. Uh, that would be awesome. I still owe her half a donut uh, uh, from uh, Chattanooga, so... Uh, I feel like this would be a really good opportunity to pay her back for that. Uh, yeah, she has not let me forget that I threw out a half of a of a Krispy Kreme chocolate glazed donut. <laughs> oh, a Krispy Kreme uh, donut that was too. in the box. Oh. How dare you? Oh. Well, because you, you know, it, see, it, see, Mark. Here's the thing. I'm in Milwaukee now, and and you know, not too far from where Joe was recently. You can't find Krispy Kreme here. So, oh my god. Like when I yeah, yeah. go to oh like we were in South Carolina, you know, a couple months back and we went to the Krispy Kreme and we just like gorged ourselves on Krispy Kreme sure. because Sure. You yeah. can hurt yourself. It's like oh, yeah. gold. <laughs> yeah, you can totally hurt yourself. But in in my case what I uh I I just I did it wrong because I uh and it was the first lesson I learned as a as a married couple. Men and women eat donuts differently. If a guy <laughs> eats half a donut, it's because it's bad and he's not going to finish it. Mm -hmm. If a woman eats half a donut, she's rationing. <laughs> and that, that was a part of a plan. There's a there's a caloric um, uh, calculus that took place that if I ate a half a donut now and then I do the following six things in order, I can have the rest of that donut at 2.45 in the afternoon. Well, I, you know, that's not how we calculate things as men. We go, uh, if I can put all of this in my mouth, I'm going to eat it. If I cannot, then I will not. And so I uh, looked at the detritus of the Krispy Kreme and thought, oh, what a shame. We didn't finish the donuts and threw the box out. And I, it was a chilly, it was a chilly drive uh, <laughs> into, into Virginia. I want to tell you right now, it was it, it was like sitting on a block of, uh, of, of ice. It was terrifying never again never so what again lesson learned what is this rationing you speak of well it's something women do with with uh, things like donuts and cake 
uh, and pie, uh, anything that they're not supposed to have, they, they can meter out with the kind, with the kind of willpower that you normally see at professor Xavier's school for gifted youngsters. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right. Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, as fun as this is, I think we got to move along here, guys. Um, but that means that it's time for our five minute controversy. And so for those who are just joining the show, the five-minute controversy is just a way for us to uh, loosen up before our topic. And uh, this week, we are talking about the news that Kevin Feige has become the creative director for all of Marvel. That's everything from their comics to uh, TV to movies to everything. And... You know, I think most people are have been on board with Feige for the movies. Um, I've heard some people that are a little worried about this, of one person with that much control over all of Marvel's output. There's also some people who are upset because they think that he's going to invalidate the TV shows. Uh, there's already some, you know, um, evidence that he's canceling all the TV shows um, currently out there other than the stuff that they're doing for Disney Plus so uh, just out of curiosity what do you think is this a good move for Feige to be in this position or is it a bad move so let's start with you Joe well the uh, uh, corollary or in addition to that news was today I believe that Jeff Loeb who was in charge of Marvel's TV division is leaving at the end of the year Yes, and they were crossways for all these months anyway because agents of shield couldn't use anybody or any storylines and they it's just such an inside baseball mm-hmm. ludicrous thing to have this one big universe and to make this concerted effort to make it all fit together and then decide that I that that uh, no, never mind. We're just going to be mad at each other and not make this happen. I mean, they managed uh, Feige and whoever else. They got 22 plus major motion pictures made, but you can't coordinate with a TV show. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. Redonkulous. So if there's just one guy in charge, maybe that's better. That's that's my take. Will, what do you think? Well, on a on a quick side note, it appears the only comic adaptation of Tron came out in 2010, believe it or not. Okay. Uh, Post-Disney acquisition, so this was indeed by Marvel, and written by Peter David. So there you go. I am surprised there wasn't a Tron comic back in the 80s to coincide with the movie. I have no, Googled there was, ferociously. There was, there was Black Hole, but not Tron. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there you go. Answer. The more so, you know. I know. (laughs) So please don't sue me, uh, Disney or uh, NBC. So anyway, yeah, I think this is a good thing because to echo what Joe's saying, um, it's all under one umbrella now, the mighty umbrella of Feige. So I don't see this as a bad thing at all, you know, and the concern of Kevin getting over Kevin, like we're, you know, we're buds or BFFs. The concern about Mr. Feige getting overworked is valid. But, I mean, he's made, you know, 23 and counting films now at this point, being a producer. And, obviously, a lot of these films were being filmed simultaneously. You know, they weren't just going from one to the other. There was multiple productions going on at one time. So, he knows how to properly multitask and juggle all these things in the air at one time. I mean, and delegate 
to whoever he needs to delegate to to make sure it gets done. I mean, it'd be crazy to think that he was on set for every day of every shoot for every movie. So, I mean, he's smart enough to know, hey, I'm going to let this person handle this, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I think getting it all together under the same, like I say, the same umbrella is definitely a good thing. We'll have a much more cohesive, unified front moving forward. So, yeah, bring it. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I do want to mention that I've read online, fear people have, is that with him also overseeing the print line, you know, comics mostly, is that he will basically reboot the Marvel Universe as basically being the MCU, but in comics, and get rid of, you know, everything that's gone before to make them more streamlined and have everything all interconnected. So that's part of the fears that I'm reading out there in the uh, in the geekosphere. Um so, Mark, what do you think about all of this? Uh, well, uh, I'm going to absolutely agree uh, with uh, Joe and Will. Uh, but uh, I also want to just yeah, – I, I don't remember if I have uh, uh, been on the podcast since I had my last like sort of um, epiphantic revelation that continuity doesn't matter. I mean, it, it just doesn't matter. It does not matter. And so um, uh, it, it only matters because we we want to connect things. But if we don't have it, it's it's a, we're still going to connect them anyways. Uh, that's and, and continuity should should be relegated to fan activity and not uh, the thing that hamstrings uh companies that are uh keeping up with this intellectual property now i think some adjustments need to be made for uh characters who through continuity and decades have emerged into a sort of a this is who this character is kind of a thing you know i don't think we throw out everybody's origin story and start over with all them being sexy robots i mean that's stupid but um i don't think that I think right now the Marvel line of comics is a hot mess. Um, every character has multiple books that are coming out, and uh, some of them uh, are taking place uh, with uh, with an MCU kind of Tony Stark as Iron Man, and some of them are taking place with a classic uh, Marvel Iron Man and some of them don't even have Tony Stark in him because he's dead and everybody knows that and what's wrong with you why don't you know that and there's no real way to make sense of it right now anyways it's scrambled eggs so I would be all for somebody taking the the just insanity that is Marvel comics, comics right now and giving me like one book to read or two I'll take two I'm, two of any book is fine uh, I just don't know that we need – I don't think we ever needed uh, five X-Men comics in a month or four or even three. I think we could have happily done with two. So so all if, if Feige's going to do that, great. If he's not going to do that, well, I haven't lost anything, have I? Um, hmm. Feige's uh, going to pull the, the TV shows back. Well, we knew that was coming anyways, man. That's what the Disney app is for. I mean this isn't news really. Uh, and I don't think that Feige really has much to say about that other than he's the guy that pushes the button. But there was no way Disney was going to let all this other stuff keep hanging out there when they have spent all this money on an app that's going to showcase all of that stuff. So I expect that 
Netflix will get to keep those things out there and, and they'll be things. But the odds of, you know, and as much as I'd love to see Luke Cage and, um, and Daredevil uh, have a little team up uh, with Spider-Man, right? And that'd be so cool. Or just have, you know, have the Falcon uh, end up uh, substitute teaching in Harlem and run into Luke Cage or whatever the things might be. You know, there's those would be great moments. But if they don't happen, well, I've got 50 years of Marvel Comics where they did. And those are still available and you can still read those and they're fine. So now all that we're left with is Feige uh, being in charge of the MCU. And hasn't he been doing that anyways? I mean, can we point to any one movie and say, oh, that one shouldn't have been made? We can all say what our least favorite movie is. We can all say, uh, like, this is the movie that I thought was the weakest of the 23 that we just saw. But the weakest of the movies is still going to be better than Batman and Robin. So um, I think he gets a chance to do this. He's absolutely worked for it. Uh, He's earned it. And he's done nothing but... um, He's not. He's done nothing to betray our trust. So uh, everybody online that's that's freaking out about this, uh, take it from me. Don't freak out. Okay. <laughs> All right, Mark. There approved. you go. I, I've, yeah. I've solved the internet. Yep. There you go. <laughs> yeah. No. I, for me, I mean, since I am, see, I don't think it's as cut and dried as you said it because Disney also owns Hulu, right? They also own. Um, I think they, well, let me, let me caveat this, because they purchased Fox, I think they own FX, I'm not 100% sure on that, um, you know, Cloak and Dagger hasn't been renewed, we're all pretty sure that they're just holding back on the announcement that it's been cancelled, Runaways almost certainly is not going to be renewed because the Ghost Rider show on Hulu was pulled back after it was, you know, created, Hellstorm's probably going to be a one season thing, so, you know, I mean... It does make me sad that some of these TV projects are going away, especially Runaways and Cloak and Dagger, because I like, you know, those shows. Um, yeah, they were both they were both solid. Right. Sure. Um, now, moving forward, is it good that now the TV and the movies are going to be all in lockstep with each other? Yes, yes, that is definitely right. And but so I kind of have mixed feelings about it. I wish that Feige and Loeb could have gotten along with each other. And we could have more TV projects out there. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think this is going to be a good move. Um, I don't want them to reboot Daredevil or, you know, Iron Fist, Luke Cage, Punisher, whatever, in you know, as a different character and say that the Netflix stuff is invalid, which, you know, may happen. But, you know, at the end of the day, whatever. Um, so, you know, I, I'm kind of ambivalent on it. Um, but I was yeah. more curious to hear what other people's, you know, thoughts were on it. Um, maybe they won't. Maybe they won't invalidate it. Maybe they're just going to let it lie out there. And that's you know possible I mean? too. I mean, the rumors yeah. are, oh, well, they're going to recast and do their own version yeah, of Daredevil. But, but who knows if any of that's real, right? Um, I think. I think. I think that's hot nonsense, especially when they could just go get the guys that were involved on the other shows and well, and just but bring some them of them here. have other work, right? Like Luke Coulter is. Um, you know, on uh, on a show now, you know, Mike Coulter. Mike Coulter. I'm sorry, <laughs> I, I just I just merged his name together. See what I said about being hungry? <laughs> the, uh, you, you know, that's that, and he's got other work. Mm. But you know, um, I guarantee you, they could, especially especially how they film these things. There's, you know, he's got downtime. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very it's very easy to schedule around that stuff. So I don't think that I don't think they're done deals. I really don't. 
Um, if Lauren Cohen now, go ahead. He's now he's the first Luke Cage. That's right. Even if there's a second one somewhere down the road, he's the first one. And and, and unfortunately, and unfortunately for other people, he did a really good job of it. And so it's going to be very tough for somebody to follow that act. And so they may just decide not to and let him do but, it again. But, but here's been, the thing. If they put whoever follows him in the yellow silk shirt and the metal tiara, that person will instantly be better. <laughs> All so right, moving on. We should, uh, should move on. Right, yeah, I think uh, it'll already be a better version, regardless of performance. Oh, right, that's well, and, and plus, if you look at it like from a from a workload standpoint, mm. they've got so much in the pipeline with Phase Four and Beyond mm. and movies and and Disney Plus. They're in a good position where they're they're not rushed to bring any of these TV shows back anytime soon. They can take their time mm-hmm. and do it right. You know, so yeah. I mean, no, no big, no big hurry there. Yeah, I yeah, I agree. They've got a lot on their plate with everything that they've already laid out, everything that they've hinted at, and the stuff that they know we all want but aren't going to do right now, anyways. And so, um, you know, the whole point of having this be sort of a of a media empire is that it's an actual media empire, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, and it's got to be one guy at the top sort of dictating all that. I mean, uh, when you brush it, you have, you know, instances of, you know, Fant Forstick and, uh, you know, X-Men Origins Wolverine. So let's, let's not rush into it. All right. Yeah. Let's not talk about that I, anymore. I think, uh, I think, I think we've started the podcast at the end and now we've done like year 76. <laughs> <laughs> now. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's Does anybody the, have the time start right. we need to go back. Yeah. I think yeah, that's we the, gotta end, go back. the end of our five minute controversy here. So, uh, yeah, I think we're all pretty much in agreement that this is a good move overall. Like I say, I'm going to miss the TV shows cause I'm pretty sure runaways isn't going to be renewed after this last season. And the fact that cloak and dagger has had no announcement makes me think it's probably been canceled and they just are waiting to say that it has. So, um, you know, whatever, but at the end of the day, I, we're going to get more content on Disney Plus, so it's not like I'll be you know hurting for watching Marvel stuff. Um, all right. Yeah, there, there's only there, there'll only be five Marvel series concurrently on, on <laughs> Disney Plus. It, it's tough. Right. It is tough being a, Mar- a Marvel fan. Yeah, it is. I feel sorry for him. I do. Mm-hmm. It's just it's it's <laughs> embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but uh, yeah, before we talk about 80 Years of Marvel, let's pause for a moment for a promo from another fine podcast. Everyone these days could use a little support, and your friends at the ESO Network are no different with the ESO Network Patreon. The cool thing is, is when you help support us, it's you who will benefit. With four tiers starting for as little as 25 cents a week, you can listen to some of your favorite network podcasts early, hear exclusive content, maybe get some ESO swag, or even possibly take a shot at the geek seat. All you need to do is sign up at patreon.com backslash ESO network. And we're back. 
And like we said, this show is going to be an all-Marvel-themed show. We're going to talk about the fact that Marvel, this very month that we're recording, October of 2019, turns 80. And I, I embarked on this when I started reading a book called Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe. Um, it's really, it's a really good book for getting an overview of the entire history of the company. And, uh, I would recommend it to anyone listening to this who wants to hear more than what we're going to talk about. Um, but yeah, at this, at this rate, we're going to have to do like one year per minute. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, so, so let's, uh, let's kick it off here. You know, I mean, usually... When you hear about Marvel, and part of this is because Stan Lee was just such a good um, spokesman, you know, people start with Fantastic Four number one, you know, 1961, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and that's sort of the origin point. But actually, Marvel's been around for a bit longer. Yeah, they've been called other things. They were called Timely. They were called Atlas. But it's the same company. And in fact, their original comic was called... Well, first Marvel Comics, and then it changed to Marvel Mystery Comics. So, um, you know, we actually owe this entire franchise to a guy by the name of Martin Goodman. Yep. Now, uh, just out of curiosity, just just pulling the guys that I have here, um, have you guys read any of the Golden Age output of Marvel? Uh, so, Joe, have you have you read any of those old like forties? late thirties Marvel books. Uh, I read, um, I think I, I, I had a digest of the 1940s Captain America comics. Yeah. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. So I've read, or, or maybe those were just reprints that I read from sixties comics. But anyway, yeah, I've, those I've read and I've read a few, like over the years, they'd put a, uh, they would, they would put an old Submariner story or an old mm-hmm. Human Torch story in the back of an Avengers annual or something like that. So yeah, yeah, I've I've read a smattering of of those things, but my main exposure to those characters was when Roy Thomas brought them all back in Invaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, Stan brought a few of them back first in in the 60s, you know, Namor, you know, Captain America, you know, even the original Human Torch. Um, But uh, but yeah, for the most part, you're right. It's invaders that really brought them into the the modern age of comics. Um, So, Mark, I know you're a big comics history buff, so I'm sure you've read some Golden Age Marvel. I have. Uh, I was uh, a lot of what drew me to comics initially was uh the artists and so in my teenage years i actually sought out a bunch of different older uh artists uh golden age artists who were considered the guys that my current heroes all looked at and that included uh bill everett uh who gave us um uh submariner and uh uh uh, Burgos, who gave us the Human Torch, and so, um, and, and of course, uh, Simon and Kirby. And mm-hmm. I read a, a metric ton of Simon and Kirby, uh, including the first ten issues of Captain America from the Golden Age, mm-hmm. and uh, I, a smattering of other Timelies uh, at the time. Mostly, uh, 
the Captain America, which as as fun as the um, as the Submariner and the Human Torch stuff is, and it's fun. Uh, I think the Captain America stuff is is still eminently readable because it has that kind of golden age jangle to it. You know, there's a there's a sense that you can almost see the the whole like go kart rocking where the wheels aren't nailed on right. It's really great. Uh, <laughs> and, and of course, just to, just all this kinetic energy. You know, um, uh, Kirby's art style changed a lot over the years. But it, it always had a, a sense of motion and a sense mm-hmm. of uh, of kinetic energy to it, and uh, and it's something you know he wasn't always the greatest draftsman. I mean, there were certainly guys in the Golden Age who were, I think, uh, more accomplished uh, artists, but it, they didn't always have the same kind of dynamic power that Kirby did. Kirby was sort of comic storytelling personified in that in that capacity Mm. certainly for superhero comics yeah and uh will have you read any golden age stuff i'm kind of in the same boat as joe um like i never i haven't read any of the golden stuff like in its entirety right just stuff that's been reprinted through the years and collected you know like in anniversary issues they you know let's check out the origin of this character from back in the day and blah 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 you know that Mm -hmm. kind of thing um so i've read like excerpts and you know short stories from back in the day you know reprints and whatnot but um you know not like actual you know books from that time you know mm-hmm. um you know my main my main exposure was you know the silver age you know when they were rebranded as marvel comics so mm-hmm. but i mean i'm aware of the history you know because you know having been a huge marvel fan forever and ever you know you, you learn about it you know you learn about the history and where these books and characters came from mm-hmm. um but yeah i haven't actually read the all those stories from back in the day. So, well, um, so so I started on this sort of journey of trying to read Marvel's Golden Age, and it's been slow. You know, I mean, because my time to read period is not what it used to be at all. Um, and so, um, I, I've been really surprised by what I've read because you know, if you go to the Silver Age stuff. You know, you find there's a lot of really good ideas in Stan's books, but, you know, the the panel layout is usually fairly static, right? It's usually like a six by two grid or maybe a three by three grid. You know, there's not a whole lot going on there. You know, the dialogue tends to be kind of, you know, goofy slash campy in a lot of places. You know, good artwork, great ideas, you know, but, you know, it's kind of, you know, I mean, you can tell that it's dated, right? But the Golden Age, I found, and maybe this is because it was pre-code, there was a lot of really interesting stuff going on. Like, one thing that I've noticed is panel layouts sometimes get really weird, so much so that they have to actually draw arrows saying, hey, go to this one next, then go to this one, because they're not laid out in a way that makes it obvious which order you're supposed to read them in and stuff like that, which, you know, is kind of interesting. They tend to be wordier. You know, there's a lot more crammed into word balloons, but they also tend to be a bit darker, at least in my opinion, than a lot of the Silver Age stuff. And I think that is definitely because of pre-code. You know, you read Marvel Comics number one and Namor is just like murdering people. You know, it's just like, oh, you're in the ocean. You're kind of near Atlantis. Dead. You know, it's just like, you know. It's just what he does. Let me let me get, let me take a survey. Who, when you saw that word, na- name more superhero name the first time, 
Did you say submariner? Oh yeah, totally. Abs- absolutely. Okay, good. Totally. It's yeah. not just me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, the first time I heard him referred to as mariner, I'm like, what's a mariner? Yeah, like, the the, fir- the 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 first time that um one of the first comics that I read was an, an issue of The Invaders. It's the first comic I read with Namor in it. And they actually, like, wrote it out. Like, a guy says, hello, Mr. Submariner, you know, and they write it phonetically. And they, like, correct his pronunciation. <laughs> so, you know, it's, yeah. You, you, you lucked out. I had to go around uh, sounding like an idiot until I was 12. No, uh, uh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I still call the, the green chick from Warlock and the Infinity Watch uh, Gamera. But, you know, the well, say okay, Gamora. Okay. <laughs> so. Clearly not a flying turtle. <laughs> right. uh, I, you know, I think you're right about the darkness. Uh, but I, I, I also think, uh, I don't know if it's so much darker as it was. These things were coming out of the pulp traditions. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, there, you know, it was not a, it was not uncommon to have, you know, in both, the, for example, the Shadow and Doc Savage to have... Uh, a villain holding a city hostage mm-hmm. and you know the collateral damage being just sort of um uh, you know at what you expect uh and and that was all sort of uh i think i think some of that comes out of the idea of of what we of warfare from world war one uh, leading up to World War II, you know, there was now a sense of what a bombed city would look like. It was not, there was no, you didn't have to imagine uh, mechanical things uh, rolling into town. You didn't have to imagine people getting blown up uh, or gassed. You know, these were, these were, this was something that they, that you could use as a touchstone mm-hmm. in your fiction to impart a sense of danger. Yeah. Maybe and, I should have used the term grittier. Yeah, well, I, I yeah, so they, they they definitely were that, and uh, and I, so you had this industry that uh, was was going gangbusters. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, comics were exploding, and and all of these pulp publishers were rushing to start comic book houses, and they were literally pulling people off the street. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if you were a seventeen or an eighteen year old kid and you could draw at all. You got the job. And so for nearly everyone in the industry at that time, it was on the job training. There were only a handful of artists who were who had gotten commercial art training of any mm-hmm. kind or who were older and had, had worked in commercial arts or had worked in newspaper strips or things like that. And so I think some of those weird panel layouts that you're uh, talking about – is is less experimenting with the form and more these guys were learning as they went mm-hmm. <laughs> and and, and that certainly applied that certainly applied to uh timely uh they aren't known for having like the best you know artwork of the golden age um uh it gets better and the, and the covers get better but you know there were there were production houses like the Eisner Iger Studio and uh, what Simon and Kirby were doing. They were basically a packaging house. Mm-hmm. But all the in-house guys were who basically who showed up with a portfolio that didn't suck. <laughs> yeah, and so, it also probably helped for those younger artists that when World War II started, the comics boomed because servicemen were buying them up. But at the same time, they were getting their adult, you know, people working at those comics <laughs> companies called up, you know, drafted. So they were, you know, kind of hurting for talent 
you know, in the companies yeah. as well. So, um, you know, so one of the things that I've uh, discovered sort of that I think is intrinsic to Marvel, and, and keep in mind, this is just before the war, the stuff that I'm reading. I haven't even gotten to Captain America yet. Oh, wow. Is that this idea of... See, I've always had this sort of thesis that, that Marvel takes the idea that a superhero isn't necessarily a good thing. And it was baked into Marvel from the very beginning. Because the Human Torch in the beginning, everyone's afraid of him. Right. He catches things on fire, right? So he's helping people. He's doing the right thing. And people are like, ah, oh, get away from me. You know, it's, it's kind of like the X-Men prototype. Right, you right. know, like or even Spider Man is the misunderstood hero. He rescues someone or whatever. They, the, you know, the headline reads: Spider Man tries to rob woman, you know, or whatever. And uh, because people misunderstand the things that they're trying to do, and you know, I don't know if this is you know something where I'm going to find more evidence for it as I go. But I just found it kind of interesting that what I found makes Marvel unique which is the idea of the superhero as outsider rather than the superhero as, you know, like like the, the, the person who's lauded or, you know, celebrated, you know, was there from the very beginning. I Yeah, that's actually an astute observation. You know, um, they have... Uh, uh, you know, I don't know if it's if it's Martin Goodman or if it's just that they never outgrew their pulp roots mm. or, or what. But, uh, uh, you know, in the 50s, when they became Atlas, you know, almost all of their Westerns are antiheroes. Mm. They're misunderstood outlaws. You know, all of their monster comics are there's there's not a lot of science helping people right, right, right. <laughs> you know it's not there's just not a lot of that <laughs> right, right. science is usually causing the problems or or whatever but uh that, that absolutely is a through line that follows into uh some of the most uh important and popular uh marvel characters in the silver age totally mm -hmm. the other thing that i wanted to mention is that marvel gets the first crossover credit because you know, uh, Marvel Mystery Comics was an anthology book. There were several different characters in there. We already talked about Submariner, Human Torch. There was also uh, the original Angel, Masked Raider, which was a Western character. The original Kazar, which I never knew there was a Kazar before the, the oh, X-Men character. You know, um, oh, so, yeah. so they had these different sort of characters in there. But someone had the idea of, hey, wouldn't it be interesting? Because Namor is conquering New York, and at this point... The Human Torch was in New York that what if they met each other, you know, and so in, in this in this book that I read, you know, the history of Marvel Comics, they're talking about like how like Carl Burgos and Bill Everett, they're like staying up all night in one of their apartments. I can't remember which one just like furiously drawing and working together because it's kind of a cool issue if you read it because it's not like what you, we think of a crossover now as part one and then part two. It's kind of the same sequence of events, but from the two characters points of view. So you see, like, yeah. the Human Torch's point of view, and then you see, like, the Submariner's point of view. And so it's a pretty interesting thing. But even that, like, I love the idea of, like, Namor's just like, you know, this is not like I have an army of Atlanteans. Namor's just like, I'm going to conquer New York by myself. <laughs> and he almost succeeds, which is the best part. <laughs> well, he was, he was always a confident man. Yes. You know? <laughs> He was never lacking in self-confidence. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I love, yeah, I, I, I love a lot of that. And the, um, the final thing that I wanted to say about those Golden Age books and, and that I find kind of fascinating is that comics, I think, have always been a means for creators to 
tell stories beyond just for little kids because it's so clear how slanted the opinions are of what they call the quote-unquote war in Europe during that period. You know, like, Pearl Harbor hadn't happened yet, but a lot of the comics, uh, you know, have sort of a bent of, you know, oh, the war in Europe, Nazis are bad people and all of that. And so it's kind of interesting that they even had that kind of, uh, you know, social, political kind of bent in there in those early comics. Because, again, you know, I had read a lot of 60s comics. You know, when I first got into comics, I'd read a lot of the Silver Age stuff, a lot of reprints, whatever I could get my hands on. And the comics were very much not that way at that time, right? You know, and and again, that might be a backlash from the comics code or whatever. I don't know, but they it wasn't until the seventies that comics started commenting more on society and whatnot. But uh, it's kind of neat that they were that they were doing that from the beginning. And I don't know if that's universal, but at least Marvel was doing that at that time. Well, hey, I'm going to turn my phone around. This is one of my favorite comic book covers from this time period. I've got the poster on my wall. I don't know if you guys can see. Ah, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, there we go. go. So it's the famous uh, Captain America number one cover that Joe is showing right now, where Captain America is very famously punching Hitler in the face. Punching Hitler (laughs) on issue one. Yeah, Yeah, they, uh, I think all the companies were were very pro uh, World War II. There was, I can't think of a single comic company uh, that was uh, pro. American booned. Mm-hmm. I can't think of a single one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, you can attribute that to essentially 99.9% of all the comics being published in uh, the Golden Age to the fact that they were all being published in New York City mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and all being drawn by uh, first uh, generation immigrants who, you know, many of whom escaped can remember coming over, you know, mm-hmm. or so, so there was uh there was real skin in the game of, for everybody to be fighting spies and saboteurs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I don't think that that was, I don't think that was uh, intrinsic to Marvel. Uh, but, uh, I do think that, uh, you know, Marvel got the, I don't know. They may have. They may have actually led the way. I believe the Captain America number one was the first foray into Nazi fighting mm-hmm. uh, that I can think of historically. I, there may have been another book where somebody was fighting spies and saboteurs, but Captain America number one on the cover makes it real obvious. Hey, guess what we're gonna do? Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, and so, that was the thing. Uh, Goodman was very savvy about finding what was in the zeitgeist. And yeah. saying we got to pivot to that right away, you know, that's one of the things that the book makes clear. And they could only publish so many books, so a lot of times they'd be like, "Okay, this one goes, this one comes in." And so, um, you know, so that's Captain America. You know, Pearl Harbor happens, America enters the war, and it's like, "Hey, we need to have a character that sort of wraps this up," you know, like that encapsulates this. And um, you know, that then then we got Cap, and he's punching Hitler. <laughs> Actually, that comic came out. Oh no, it was Wonder Woman that came out in 1940. Yeah, no, no, Captain America was 1941. Yeah, uh, Wonder Woman um, uh, is uh, there's a there's a historical bent in Wonder Woman, but it's not the same as Cap. Cap is very much uh, 
you know, we're going over there to do this. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that is a comic that I've read, even though it's not in the uh, in the order that I'm reading them now. But, uh, yeah, I've read Captain America number one. And, um, you know, and and in fact, Captain America also is historically significant because Stan Lee's first work. Who he was uh, actually a nephew of Bill Everett or not Bill uh, of Martin Goodman through his um, through his wife. He was uh, uh, that that came to work for the company, and so his first work was on Captain America number four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, did uh, did did Sean Howe mention uh, what those little uh, things were? Um, the reason why there were all these text pieces in the comics? Um, no, I don't think he mentioned that. But yeah, they were. Yeah, that, that's a good point, though. A lot of these comics were fairly long, and they would have like actual prose mixed in with the uh, with the comics. And it was to allow them to claim that this was quote unquote literature, which allowed them to mail the comics out to subscribers. Uh, book right. That's right. No, I think he does. Now that you said it, I'm remembering that from earlier in the book. Yes, I think they did mention that. Um, Fun stuff. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the other thing. He was not only savvy about what was in the zeitgeist. He was savvy about like how to squeeze like every penny, you know, out of out of things. So, which also meant yes. there was bad stuff from that, like when they laid off the entire bullpen. Um, in the late 40s and just had, uh, you know, uh, Stan and, and then it was just freelancers working with Stan, you know. Um, so, so you know, that's there's a lot of bad blood there with a lot of people at the time. Kirby was very unhappy and Joe Simon, they were all unhappy. But, of course, when everybody's out of work, eventually they came back to Marvel, um, you know, working as freelancers. So, um, so let's move on to the Silver Age because I think that's something that everybody's a little more familiar with. Um, and we do start with that Fantastic Four number one. Um, does anybody want to talk about the Fantastic Four and how revolutionary they were? I, uh, I, I feel like I should sort of mention the origin story because sure. there's, a, there's a real um, – accounts vary – uh, as to how this exactly went down. Uh, and and depending on who you talk to, uh, whether it was one of the people in the room or one of the people that got interviewed, there's, there's roughly four or five different versions of this same basic thing. Mm-hmm. And it's that Goodman was uh, playing golf with Harry Donenfeld from D.C. And they were – talking about the comics and, and Goodman was kvetching because his stuff isn't selling and he's thinking about getting out. And Donenfeld very, uh, casually says, yeah, we're doing, we're doing just great. We got a new book out, uh, superheroes, justice league. And, and he goes, ah, team books don't sell. You can't do superheroes anymore. He's like, yeah, we're, we're doing really mm-hmm. good with it. <laughs> and he goes, oh, that's great. And he finished the golf game. And then he goes back to the office. And at this point they had shut down some of the other parts of the office than just had a few offices open on their, on their, um, on their floor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, he, depending on who you talk to, he says, you have the weekend or give me a week or I want this immediately. But he basically entrusts Stan to create, um, a book. I need, I need, I need a, I need a team. I need superheroes. And he said, well, what do you want me to do? And he, he says, I don't care what you do. Just do it. And so Stan basically took elements of what they knew, were working 
Okay. Um, they had seen challenges of the unknown or Kirby had been doing challenges of the unknown, uh, which is sort of a throwback to the pulps. They, and they were fighting monsters. Well, the monster books were big, uh, over, uh, with Atlas at the time. He knew he could get Kirby who would do, who would do the work quickly. And so they did sort of a half measure. It's a superhero, but they don't have costumes, mm. at least not until issue four. Uh, they're superheroes, but they're not traditional superheroes. It's a little more sophisticated take. Mm-hmm. In the first episode, they're fighting a giant monster, which is straight out of the stuff that they've been throwing out, uh, you know, whether it was Tim Boom Ba or Fin Fang Foom or, uh, you know, uh, Groot or any of the other <laughs> yeah. uh, big monsters. And so, I, and so basically Stan you know, whether he, depending on who you talk to, came up with the idea of, you know what, if, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out my way. Mm. I'm going to go out doing the thing that I wanted to do. And so he wrote the series. Uh, he wrote those initial scripts. Um, I would say very, with a more sophisticated style than they've been using. Mm. And, uh, and you can tell right away that, you, I mean, if you read the monster comics and then go straight to Fantastic Four, you can see that it's a half step. But you can also see that even in this first issue, Stan's enjoying himself. Mm-hmm. And so, so you know, there wasn't so much a divine spark as uh, mother necessity. You know, okay. we need something to keep the doors open. And that was the Fantastic Four number one. Yeah, I mean, there were some really cool things like... You know, they needed a family rather than just, you know, superheroes, you know, sitting around a hall, you know, a table or in a hall of justice or whatever. They made it so that their identities weren't secret. Everybody knew who the Fantastic Four were. And so it's kind of this neat, more, you know, nowadays we'd say it's a more realistic approach or, you know, it's more grounded or whatever. But except it wasn't because then they had the big monster and, you know, the weird outlandish elements. So it was a, you know, it was it was such a different thing than the books that the other people were putting out then. And that's why I always yeah. credit Stan as being like one of the best ideas men. Like I said before, this dialogue always isn't my favorite. I sometimes feel it's a little corny or whatever, but his ideas were always amazing. Well, and plus he started, I mean, Fantastic Four started this long history of Marvel Comics characters being relatable, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and you you mentioned the family aspect of it. You know, everyone can relate to to family in some form or fashion. You know, Um, these were, these were astronauts doing their job and get, and got thrust into this situation that they had to deal with. You know, they weren't, you know, like you, like you mentioned, you know, the Justice League, they weren't God sitting around a table you know, how should we, you know, help out the normal people today? You know, these were normal people trying to find their way with this new situation they found themselves in, you know, and and people could could find something to relate to, you know, whether it's, you know, I'm in a new situation or I've got family issues, you know, that I need to deal with. Or well, I mean, you've got some whatever. of the iconic. It, it, it brought them down to earth. You've got some of the iconic Marvel elements, right? You've got Johnny Storm as the teen hero, right? You know, that's going to find yeah. its perf- perfect fulfillment in Spider-Man. But here, there he is, the same idea of sort of like, hey, you know, like, since we got teens reading these things, why don't we make one of the heroes a teen? Um, 
it, you know, some of the reprints that I've read reprint the uh, the letters pages, you know, and so like reading some of the early Spider-Man letters pages are always kind of interesting because the idea of a teen hero was so revolutionary at the time, right? And I'm sure the Human Torch got lumped in with that also. Um, sure. You've got Ben Grimm as the, once again, the misunderstood hero. People think he's a monster. You know, again, but but, is... but he's but he's also a veteran, right? Right. So so you know they're 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 clearly aiming for a totally different audience. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, but I'm just saying though, the whole idea of Ben as this person that people look at him and they're afraid of him. That's going back right. to that thing that I'm saying is part of Marvel's DNA almost of this the outsider yes. hero, right? You know yes. that that people think is is this horrible thing when he's really this sweet guy, right? He's 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 right. got a temper. You know, you don't cross him, but Ben, normal Ben, he's such, and that's, you know, that's why you need the blind Alicia Masters who doesn't see to, to find that this is the kind, you know, to see, to, to know that Ben is the kind, caring soul because she doesn't perceive the thing, the horrible aspect that everybody else is, you know, uh, perceiving. And with, with Ben specifically, you know, we all know, we all have known or do know someone that has that that gruff rough mm. exterior but with the with the soft inner shell that was being literally right. <laughs> you know i mean he's right there on paper mm. you know i mean it, and it's it spoke to people yeah totally. and what i think is interesting and, and and again this is me just spitballing knowing that marvel also started hiring fans in the 60s you know people who had grown up reading the golden age books and were actively like like roy thomas was a guy who you know he ran a fanzine for comics you know, and then he gets right. to work for. Mo- I- I'm wondering if that Stan thinking, you know, some of the guys who are reading these books are probably married now. So, you know, now we have the married couple in there, too. You know, we've got well, I guess they weren't married right away, but they were engaged. Right. You know, so it was like, you know, I- that even might be reflecting the fact that he understood that his readership wasn't just little kids that, you know, there might be adults reading this, you know. Yeah, no. Yeah. That's that. That's the thing is is the the, the notion that that comics were for kids was always an outside in um, thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was always people looking at because because of course the kids were reading comics, but so were grownups, so were the adults, and uh, you know it was only considered really kid stuff uh, once the code got impo- got uh, got employed and you know, Batman started fighting space aliens that, uh, didn't bleed. Right. So, uh, I think a lot of these early decisions at, in the Marvel silver age was a desire for them to sort of get around the code or not get around the code, but take the limitations of the code and still write something that, you know, Stan said more than once, Stan said, I wanted, I wanted to write stories that I was interested mm-hmm. in reading. Yes. And so, so there's the, there's the narrative drive and, and on a personal level, well, I can just attest to the fact that kids do not like to be talked down to, especially in their, uh, in, in the stuff that they choose to consume, uh, whether it's books, comics, TV shows or whatever, kids don't like to be talked down mm-hmm. to. And so no kid I don't know. I don't. Nobody ever wanted to play Robin. Robin was always the role you assigned to your little brother. What you really wanted to play was Batman. Uh-huh. So, so I don't. So the, this whole idea of of sidekicks was always just kind of like you know uh, eye rolling. Yeah. But uh, very quickly, 
you know, I, I and I think that's why he makes the choices that he makes uh, with these early characters. Uh, he takes the teen hero instead of making him the psychic, he makes him the hero, mm. and that's how he gets Spider Man. Right. And and Spider Man does resonate in a way that Speedy and Robin never really could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it was kind of funny, because if you read some of those early letters pages, people say things like, you know, this is amazing for a teenager to be a, not a sidekick, but the actual hero of the story. And, hey, isn't Spider-Man such a great name instead of something like Captain Spider or something like that? And, you know, a lot of these things yeah. that Stan did, like, people were like, this is unusual, but we like it. You know, like, this right. is this is this is really cool. This is hip. Right. And, um, you know, so, so yeah, I, I think that he that he. It was cluing into something in the, uh, in in you know in 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 the in the ether in the zeit. I mean, I don't want to overuse the word zeitgeist. I've already used it a few times, but um, but but he's cluing into that. Um, one other thing, though, before we move on from Fantastic Four, that I wanted to say is, you know, I mean, kind of counter to what you were saying before, Mark, <laughs> is that one of the big decisions that Stan made was that, hey, that Golden Age stuff that some of you grew up reading, it matters. You know, we're going to have continuity here with that stuff. And whereas DC, you know, really didn't have those extensions to the old stuff in this period, you know, he said, hey, we're bringing Namor back, you know, and right. we're going to have that original Human Torch show up. And, you know, eventually later in Avengers, we're going to bring back Captain America. And so, you know, it, it made it, you know, uh, uh, something where Marvel now has a history, right? It's not just right. these new comics there's a, so there's payoff for people who have been long time, uh, you know, fans. And they um, they also brought back a lot of the monsters that were in the fifties too. Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. Nope, that's right. And part of that is because of the way they made the comics. So we talked about Stan with scripts and whatnot, but but once they started doing a lot of comics, Stan couldn't do scripts anymore. And so what he'd do is he'd talk to Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko or whoever and be like, hey, I got this idea for a book. And he would just sort of like outline like, you know, this is what I want to happen. And Jack would go and Jack would be able to determine how the pages were laid out and what he actually put on each panel and all that kind of stuff. And so Jack was then able to pull sometimes from stuff that he wanted to put in there and say like, hey, I drew this monster once. You know, I'm going to put that in here because, you know, that's the monster we're going to use and stuff like that. So, you know, that sort of Marvel style of doing comics was born of necessity, but it did allow artists more creative freedom than they were getting at a lot of the other companies. Yeah, it was uh, they were they were flying by the seat of their pants. And so it was uh, another thing is, is I think it was maybe easier at the time to 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 have that continuity because it allowed them to pick up the threads of the story, you know, okay, what we do last issue. Uh, okay. So we're going to keep going with this, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it allowed for multi issue stories where they could, uh, stretch thing out over three issues and build suspense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and absolutely Marvel gets the credit for that, but you know, they were, I mean, one of the big deals, uh, one of the, you know, the, the, at least in the Silver Age, it was interesting because by 66, Peter Parker had graduated from high school mm-hmm. <laughs> and was going yeah, and, was, they... and was going to college. And we got to see him graduate. Mm-hmm. We got to see, you know, uh, the, the, the Fantastic Four got engaged and then got married mm-hmm. and we got to see the wedding. So there was this really cool progression. And 
that really had to kind of that had to stop after about ten years <laughs> right. because they realized, <laughs> you know, like, what? what that meant. But but at least initially, and and you know, in, in, you're absolutely they set the pace car with the idea that all this stuff you know was going to be was going to stretch out from um, issue to issue, and I think it's the thing that makes um, makes the Marvel universe. Uh, a, a legitimate shared world. Yeah. Uh, in that in that capacity. Oh, well, that's so. the other thing that we need to mention too, which is again different from what the other comic companies were doing. Sometimes they just throw stuff randomly in there to again have that payoff for the people who are collecting multiple books. Of hey, we'll reference this thing that happened in Thor over in this issue of Spider Man, and have a little asterisk saying, "Hey, you know, well, it's two things. One, it's payoff for the people who are already collecting, and for the people who aren't collecting, it's like, hey, maybe you want to go pick up that issue of Thor, and here's right. our little advertisement like baked in here. So you know, I mean, that was a cool thing that they did too, and since it stands the one doing all the writing you know it's pretty easy for him to like manage all of that right because he's you know like hey i'm writing all this stuff so i can put the references in there and it doesn't take a lot of effort for somebody to police that and and later roy thomas was the guy mm-hmm. that was really good at keeping that going mm-hmm. yeah it, it's it, it originally was was crass promotionalism but uh it had the added advantage of building the world for him mm-hmm. and and showing that that what happened in asgard uh, mattered in, in Manhattan, you know, uh, th- and I don't know that they did that consciously, at least initially, but, but it, it really made the Marvel universe, this vast place. And it made New York city a lot bigger, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Fa- fun stuff. So, so we've been talking a lot about the fantastic four. I'd like everybody to pick a silver age character and we'll just talk about that one character for a few minutes. Um, so will, um, since you haven't gotten to talk a whole lot yet, what's a silver age character or book that you would like to talk about? Oh gosh, where do I start? Um, I mean, probably my biggest love in all of Marvel, you know, dating back to, uh, to the silver age has got to be the X-Men. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I can't pick just one character cause how do you, you uh-huh. know, uh, but you know, X-Men is definitely my, my jam in Marvel, you know, with a close second being the Hulk. Well, the X-Men uh, though are so fascinating because of how different it was in the sixties. Oh yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, they were, I mean, and you can draw parallels to, you know, race relations mm-hmm. or, or any other type of, you know, social group that was being outcast, you know, and once again, you know, I'm going to always fall back to the relatability mm-hmm. of Marvel characters people can find something to relate Mm -hmm. to, you know? Um, and you know, here's the analog of, yeah, these are heroes, but they are tortured heroes, you know? Um, you know, Cyclops, you know, has this incredible power, but he can't look at somebody, you know? Um, you know, fast forward 20 some odd years, you know, rogue has this incredible power, but she can Mm -hmm. never have physical contact with somebody, you know, they're, they're, they're great and powerful abilities, come with this massive cost that that they have to deal with and live with on a daily basis um and you know and once again going back to the teen factor you know when the x-men started professor x got them all together they were teenagers you know so once again going to that that younger demographic but told in a very adult way you're hitting both you know demographics of readership and bringing everybody on board um and it once again continual lightning in a bottle you know with 
every book that they brought out just hit just resonated with with the public and just rolled with it and it was great success yeah see x-men is an interesting story i think because how i would say that it's one of stan's few flops in the silver age which is funny because of how x-men's become since then because you know th right. they didn't put a highlight too much on the race aspect of it at that time there was a little bit of it you know because you have trask who you know hates mutants and fears mutants and he creates the sentinels and you've got some stuff but it wasn't front and center like it would be when claremont eventually started writing x-men sure they had you know a fantastic idea and they rolled with it for as long as they could, but they stalled out. And of course, you know, famously, it led to the the, the cancellation of the book. Went into mm -hmm. a reprint mode for about five years um, because they ran out of steam with it. You know, only when when Claremont and and uh, Lynn Wing came on board, they they retooled it and really focused in on the all new, all mm -hmm. different aspect of it. And uh, and really, yeah. But I think that you hit the nail on the head, though, that they had the right ideas in place. It just maybe necessarily wasn't like but they weren't in the right proportions, you know, because you had the young heroes, you had the outcast factor, you had all of that. But, uh, you know, yeah, it, it didn't get that readership that a lot of the other books that Stan was uh, coming out with at the time did. Um, so, Joe, what's what's another Silver Age character that, or book that you'd like to talk about? I want to talk about <laughs> I want to talk about Four Bush Man. <laughs> 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 Joe wins. <laughs> I have missed you. <laughs> uh, the Four Bush Man was just, I, and but I, I think I, I think maybe I have a larger <laughs> point. Four Bush Man was one of the ways that Marvel made Marvel fans feel like mm. a community. Mm-hmm. Yep. In the letters pages and the bullpen bulletins and all the little uh, four bush man was just one of the in jokes right. that you had to as long as you kept reading the uh, letters pages with um, you started getting mm. the in jokes you started feeling like well I'm a keeper of the flame I'm one of the Mary Marvel marching society. Oh yeah. One yeah. Of, the joke that I really like is that they refer to DC as the distinguished competition. <laughs> See? exactly and it made it the it was really to use a, an irritating modern buzzword it was really um social media marketing mm. back then in the 60s it 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 made it it pulled a generation of people together and four bush man was just a joke it was just an uh he was mm -hmm. the janitor and they would uh, right. they would mention him offhandedly in a, in in um, the letters pages, and then they ended up doing a parody comic, and they put a bucket. I uh, know it was a stew pot on his head, and he became a superhero who was terrible <laughs> at his job, right? And hilarious. So, and I think it's only been in the last couple of months that the uh, the comic book that he was in uh, has been collected in a trade because I yeah. just saw it. Uh, not Brand mm. Etch. They, they also called DC mm. Brand Etch, which <laughs> that's just mean. But come on. It, it, but it made DC fans go, ooh, I'm reading Brand Etch. I don't want to read Brand Etch. I want to read Marvel. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought up the sense of community because that's another thing that comes out of a lot of that stuff. Like they released like a Christmas record 
of, you know, the various bullpen members, like, talking, you know, and singing songs, you know, doing whatever. And again, and they, they um, I know this for a fact because I actually um, spoke to uh, to someone who got a letter from Marvel at the time. They would respond personally to mail. Like, if you didn't make it into the letters page, they would still answer your mail and send you a letter back. Well, that's cool. Yeah, no, no. I mean, they, they did that kind of effort to sort of connect the readers, you know, and, and be like, hey, you know, like, yeah, you're 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 the reason we're here. You know, like we want to connect with you and, and, and you know, answer your questions and stuff like that. So, um, you know, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things, you know, Marvel always seemed to be having a good time in those days, you know, and again, Stan's yeah. personality. You know, the way he wrote, wrote those letters columns and the replies and everything, like, he's the biggest, you know, the best salesman for Marvel. And, uh, you know, he, he made it seem like it was a great, you know, a great place to be and, and everybody was having a good time. Even if you hear, you know, what Steve Ditko and, and Jack Kirby were saying later, they weren't really having a good time. You thought they were. You know? <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, and plus, you know, bringing up the community thing, I got to give a quick shout out to mm-hmm. the No Prize, which totally. which is a, another fantastic way to that they built community around the, did the entire thing. Did any of you guys ever get a No Prize? I did not. I no. sent it a couple letters a couple of times, but I didn't. <laughs> I never, wanted never one so anything. bad. No. Yeah, guys, I got a No Prize. Mm. No way. You do not. Wow. Now, I I don't still have it, oh. but unfortunately, but. I, I don't still not have the no prize, <laughs> but it was just an envelope with uh, a Marvel logo on it. And, you know, uh, like uh, a drawing of um, you know, uh, like a letter column head of like all the Marvel ca- Marvel characters like right. Spidey and Hulk and mm. that kind of thing. And it was it said you have received an official no prize. And <laughs> I feel I feel like maybe I was nine, eight or nine when I got it. Wow. And and I just thought, okay, I'm done. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I peaked I early. <laughs> yeah, stick a yep. fork at me, man. That's that's amazing. I'll, I'll t- so I'll what tell was you your what, I, what oh, was sorry. your what was your accomplishment to receive that no prize, Joe? I think what I did was, um, I know I wrote a lot of letters to Marvel team up. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, maybe I bugged them to death, and they were like, "Good lord." Please, give him something. Give him something. Uh, I think I, I explained away some kind of continuity thing with Cyclops. I feel like hmm. it's, <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, I, I, I um, which in in lo- looking back would have been very difficult for me to do because the only way I was getting Marvel comics at that time was like three to six months old comics that my uncle didn't want anymore. <laughs> Wow. So somehow I did it. Mm -hmm. I mean, okay, great. And I mean, I mean, it's my no prize, not my uncle's. Yeah, Yeah, totally. So it's an exercise for the listeners. Pour over old letters columns of Marvel team up until you find Joe's letter and we'll post it, you know, on the, on the page on the website for the 42 cast. (laughs) It's, it's out there. Yeah. Yeah, The, 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 the best thing I ever got um, from Marvel was, um, you know, in the nineties when they were canceling a lot of books, because I wrote to Warlock and the infinity watch several times suddenly one day in the mail i got a package and i opened up the package and it was the giant proof page for like the letters column for the final issue of warlock and the you know where they like they like paste 
the different like letters, you know, so oh, yeah. they can see like sort of like the proof of like what the page is going to look like. I still have it because it's wow. it's huge. I mean, it's 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 super tall. Um, but it was it's such an amazing thing that I have like a piece of like one of the things that makes the comics. You know, <laughs> so very yeah. cool. That's quite cool. You know. Yeah. Um, Forbush man, that's a good one. And yeah, and who doesn't want to join the Merry Marvel Marching Society? It was that there his community uh, creating efforts uh, stand apart. I don't think anybody was. I mean, you know, in the the radio shows in the in the forties and fifties were really good at that sort of thing. You know, with the Supermen of America, and you, you would join and get a, a decoder ring, and they'd put something on the air and all that kind of fun stuff. But um, that were essentially uh, paper craft items. They were board games that were that were made out of punched out uh, cardstock or gliders in the shape of Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel Jr. and Mary Marvel. And you would you would punch them out and make planes out of them and you could throw them and they'd look like they were flying with their arms outstretched. But nobody really brought uh, uh, the, the readers together the way Stan did with his soapbox columns mm. and the, the end jokes. And uh, we're having fun here. Don't I think probably the only guys who ever came close to that in terms of that vibe was um, Bill Gaines at Mad Magazine. Mm. Exactly. Uh, there was, yeah, yeah, yeah. They they had that too. And of course, we're talking about uh, we're talking about people who were in the same offices at the same time in the same city. You know what I mean? Mm. So it, it makes sense that that there were these little clubs. Uh, and, and you could, you could tell that the, cl- but the club, but Mads club was older, right? There, there was something hipper about, uh, Marvel. They always had that, like, like, you just sort of felt like, you know, you were one of the cool kids if you got the jokes. So, so, uh, Mark, what's a silver age character or book that you would like to talk about? Doc Bruce Banner. Ah. Ain't he unglamorous? <laughs> Wrecking the town with the power of a bull. Ain't no monster clown who is as lovable as ever loving Hulk. Hulk, Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> well done, sir. Yes. Thank you. Another character that uh, was misunderstood initially, couldn't quite find an audience. Mm. Uh, uh, a printing error uh, uh, and, a, and a miscommunication to the colorist made him green in the second issue, and they decided to roll with it because it mm. made him look more like a monster. And yet, uh, has always been one of the mainstays of the Marvel Universe. Um, so I I love the Hulk. Uh, I love everything about the Hulk. I, I love the Jekyll and Hyde character. I like all the different iterations that that came about. But uh, there's another aspect to the Hulk that I think a lot of people – and unfortunately, he's sort of uh, out of the loop these days, and that's Rick Jones. Mm. Rick Jones was – he wasn't quite a sidekick to the Hulk, but he – Rick Jones for years was something of an everyman. Mm -hmm. He was the guy who uh, Doc Banner – uh, saved by throwing him into the trench and Banner takes the full force of the gamma radiation blast. And Rick Jones stays with him because he immediately feels guilty that Banner took the, 
took the gamma blast uh, that 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 should have killed him or or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Rick Jones becomes a companion to the Hulk, and then later to Captain America. And he has this entire interesting career that spans the Marvel universe, uh, right through uh, the Bronze Age and into the um, I don't know what they call it in the '90s, but Rick Jones was still there mm-hmm. in, in, at that point. But uh, but he begins here with the Hulk. And uh, the Hulk, they, they really didn't have a handle on him initially, but I think he has become this uh, fascinating character because by the time we get to the Bronze Age in the 70s, he's one of the three most recognizable characters that they have. Whenever they start doing marketing for Marvel, and, and the marketing started early with those co- with those cartoons that I sang the, the theme mm-hmm. song Hulk was one of the mainstays. Uh, Hulk uh, was initially in the Avengers. Mm-hmm. Uh the the uh, standalone products, the the little gum machine uh, vignette books that you could buy for uh, for a quarter, and all of the toys. There was always a Hulk toy along with Spider Man and Captain America. Those were the three characters that got the biggest amount of play, um, right up until probably the mid eighties. Uh, cause by then X-Men had become a thing and Wolverine was the breakout star there. And so they had to start making room for, uh, these other characters. But even then they didn't push the Hulk out. The Hulk has maintained his status as the number one, number two, go-to hero <laughs> in the Marvel universe. Yeah. Well, he got the first Marvel television show eventually in the seventies with the, you know, the incredible Hulk. Bill Bixby, Lou Ferrigno. Uh, yep. TV show. Uh, he had he had a he had an animated series mm-hmm. uh, around the same time as Spider Man and His Amazing Friends. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, that it. animate that animated series is not bad. Uh, and uh, by the time we get up into the uh, to the end of the Bronze Age, uh, they'd done a oh one of my favorite um, the company that uh, Marvel was always a part of. Uh, had a had a magazine arm called Curtis Publications that mm-hmm. did black and white uh, stories of some of their uh, regular characters. Uh, Savage Sword of Conan uh, was was the black and white version of Conan that had a little more blood and gore and not subject to the comics code, so they could do more with it. Um, there was a Rampaging Hulk magazine as well uh, during this time period that that had kind of the same format as the TV show. And I think it might have actually been an attempt to sort of draw some of that market in uh, one way or the other because it always said Marvel's TV sensation uh, mm. as soon as the, the show started. But those those black and white issues of the Hulk are, are just beautiful. Um, uh, all, all mainstay character. I've I've collected him for years. I have a, a pretty large uh, collection of Hulk toys and things like that. I'm I'm no Stephen Sansweet, but uh, but <laughs> the Hulk the Hulk is is a character that I always gravitate to when it comes to buying back issues and cool toys and interesting stuff like that. Yeah, no, that's another good one because that's, you know, you mentioned the Jekyll and Hyde aspect of the Hulk, but there is also the sort of Frankenstein's monster version of the Hulk as a sort of overgrown child that everybody thinks is horrible, but really has this, has this kind heart, but is also prone to like savage bursts of temper. So, you know, you got that kind of thing. So, so yeah, you got Bruce Banner 
you know, as this guy who doesn't want to transform into this thing that, you know, is kind of this misunderstood good character rather than, a, you know, in the beginning, the first few issues of the Hulk, if you read those, um, it is very, like, the Hulk scene comes off as more of a villain type. But as they transition, as he goes into Tales to Astonish, you know, suddenly the Hulk becomes more of that overgrown child sort of aspect of the Hulk. And that's where I think, you know, most people think of the Hulk. Right. You know, yeah. Um yeah, so uh, you guys have all taken some good ones. There's several different ways that I can go with this one. Uh, but I think that just to talk about, because we already kind of mentioned Spider-Man, or he would be the natural one for me to talk about. Um, I think I'm going to mention Daredevil, just because even though it wasn't the best-selling book that they did, it was another one that was kind of low-key for a long time, it was another one that I think where Stan clued into something interesting, which was that... You know, what if I take somebody that has something that we perceive as a handicap and make them, you know, give them the ability to be a superhero? Because that's one of those things, like if you Mm -hmm. ever hear an interview with Lou Ferrigno, you know, he talks about, you know, the fact that he's mostly deaf, right? And, you know, he talks about, like, enjoying the Hulk, of course, because of that idea of the repressed anger and everything. But, you know, people talk about Daredevil, too, you know, as one of those things of, you know, just about everybody, even if you don't have something that would be considered uh, a handicap, you everybody has something that, you know, they're not, you know, that, that that's a negative, but that can be perceived as a positive, right? If you just twist it the other way around. And so I think that that's a really good one to just clue into something that, you know, Stan was thinking of, how can I broaden the base of comics? How can I look at things, you know, in a way that will appeal to readers? And, you know, although that that outfit was horrible in the first, in the beginning of Daredevil, (laughs) thankfully got redesigned. Um, But, uh you know, I, I, I think that Daredevil was another one of those really cool ideas that Stan came up with. Mm-hmm. And never once in the comic did they make the joke that he doesn't know right. what color it is. <laughs> yeah, I've heard a lot of other people make that joke, yeah. but yes. Yeah, the comic never never treated it that way. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I mean... Uh, there were other really great ideas. I mean, bringing in, you know, Thor as the Norse God and, you know, uh, Dr. Strange, of course, as this sort of surreal psychedelic kind of series and all that kind of stuff. But if we talk about every character, we're going to be here, you know, for many, many hours. Um, so let's move on a little bit in time to where, you know, Stan's, you know, kind of moving on. They're, you know, Roy Thomas is taking over a lot of the duties. We're seeing more writers and artists coming into Marvel. And, uh, you know, so we're hitting the 70s. And, you know, comics are starting to grow up a little bit, right? Um we have things like they wanted to tell a story about drug addiction and how drug addiction was bad, you know, because that's something that was really very much in the, in the, you know, the time period and whatnot. And, you know, they were told you can't do that. Comics code says you can't talk about drugs. Right. And, um, this isn't Spider-Man cause they were going to have Harry, you know, have an addiction problem. I have uh, talk amongst uh, yourselves. I want to. I, I don't want to get. I don't want to disappear down the Conan rabbit hole, but uh, I do feel like a, I should acknowledge that you know, the uh, 
the Bronze Age of Marvel begins with Conan the Barbarian number one. I think at this point, everybody has decided that's when the that's what it's going to be now. Uh, there was some discussion. And the comic fans were like, well, it could be this or it could be that. And I think finally everybody said, look, it's, if it's not Conan the Barbarian number one, then let's just stop using the word Bronze Age. And everybody went, okay, it's Conan. And so now <laughs> it is. When did that come out? Uh, 1970. That's it. So, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's literally, you know, the the the, the Silver Edge of Marvel is, is not quite 10 years, you know. Uh, and uh, the Bronze Age of Marvel uh, is, you know, starts with uh, Conan, and everybody kind of doesn't really know when it when it ends. There's uh, there's of course uh, a lot of speculation on it, but I I think eighty four is probably a good uh, space to to call it because by then Shooters in Charge and Secret Wars two is a thing, mm. and. Uh, and, and yeah, yeah, that's what I call it. Like, okay, uh, the fix is in now. Well, plus around that same time, you had Dark Knight and Watchmen. So you can easily say yeah, that was sure, the modern yeah, well, age as well. well. Yeah, shortly thereafter, uh, we right. get Crisis on Infinite Earths. Was 85. We, was 85. And uh, uh, Dark Knight and Watchmen were both both started in 86. And Secret Wars 2 was 86 as well, right? 86. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah look at Good, good job, Marvel. <laughs> right. Yeah. Thanks DC a lot. Way to compete. All right. Um, well, but they did though. You know, I, I, yeah, uh, I love. You know, of course, it's it's uh, not fair to say that my Bronze Age uh, upbringing comics are the best from the seventies, but there's there's a lot of stuff in the seventies that went down that I don't think people realize uh, was going down, and it and it just really comes back to Marvel was always trying to keep their finger on what was going on in the country. And as a result, uh, you know, she Hulk taught me how to be a feminist, you know? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so did spider woman because, uh, for, for a, a good, the first year that I was reading both comics, uh, every new issue would start with somebody robbing a bank or kicking a bus and then spider woman would swing in and she'd go, all right, boys, party's over. And, and somebody would always turn inevitably turn. It just never failed. There was always one guy in the gang that would go, it's just a girl. Get her. <laughs> it's like, you know, did right. you see her fly in? Didn't she swing in? <laughs> what, but you know, she's, she's seven feet tall and green. What makes you think she's quote unquote, just a girl. You deserve to get your ass <laughs> kicked. You know, someone, someone ought to beat you twice. And, and then, that, and then that would always be the case. They would just mop the floor with the gang and then all groan like, what happened? I don't understand. It's like, you know, uh, even as a kid, I saw just the, the futility of that. Like just how stupid do you have to be to think that that's just a girl? And so, uh, that's always been, uh, whenever I think back to reading comics in the, in the seventies, I, I think back to Peter Parker trying to make rent and, and have enough money to buy chemicals for his web fluid and also eat and date in New York City. And I think about everybody seeing every girl uh, superhero in, in Marvel Comics and thinking that it's just a girl. <laughs> well, and yeah. plus, wasn't, wasn't like the competition between Marvel and DC creating this this movement to where they, they push the envelope as far as storytelling goes? Because I remember, like, over, like, on DC side, they had, like, 
you know, the be- uh, like, oh gosh, I'm, th- I'm trying to think of Neil Adams on Batman, you know, really yeah. brought a lot of mature storytelling and really brought him to the forefront, kind of setting the foundation for what Frank Miller would do. And if memory serves, Marvel kind of followed suit with that just to keep up and keep pace and, and, you know, mature their storytelling as well, like with your Conan and whatnot. Right. I think that there's, I think you can look at some of the Marvel or some of the DC stuff from that time period. And it's, it's a book, it's a book by book situation because, because the Batman and detective comics from that period are great. Uh, it's, it's Denny O'Neill writing grim and gritty Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Superman comics are him working at the TV station and Morgan edge is the TV producer. And, uh, he fights, um, he fights a flying cowboy, uh, known as Terra man. And I, and I go, why am I reading this? You know, <laughs> right. What, what does this have to do with anything? Um, so it's 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 a it's a case by case basis at DC, but but Marvel even when they even when they I would not every book was a winner, but even their junk titles were written by guys who were doing interesting stories. Yeah, even they if think, they weren't doing interesting stories in those, those guys Gary Frederick and yes. Gary Conway. Yeah, yeah. Those, were, those, those guys were crushing it. Or Steve Gerber. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we could do a whole podcast on uh, uh, people like Steve Gerber who worked for Marvel and then had you know various creative clashes with them <laughs> over the years. The thing, is, the thing is, what I think what 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 happened. Um, I started reading. Well, reading period in in the seventies. I was mm-hmm. six and um, or five and. The stuff going on in Marvel at that time was super weird, mm-hmm. and I loved it. <laughs> and now I've been able to go back and read it now that I, you know, am somewhat grown up and have some money. That yeah. <laughs> that now I now I can go back and look at the seventies and go, yeah, I was right. It's yeah. weird. Yeah. Um, the Defenders is super crazy. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> and yeah, and I absolutely love it. There's a clown. No, it's not a clown. No, the elf. elf. Yes, it's the elf. elf. Yes. You know what's funny, Joe? I random to pick up. I just happened to pick up a random assortment of Defenders issues from a dollar bin. You know, it was it was it was scattered. It was like issue twenty five, issue thirty one, issue forty four, whatever. They were all mm-hmm. the comics that dealt with that stupid elf because the elf would appear, <laughs> and then you wouldn't hear about it again for six or seven issues. And it was funny because even nope. the letters column they would talk about like, yes, we're gonna get to explaining the elf. You know, like don't worry. And it was like it was like issue one hundred and something when they finally because yeah. writers would come and go, and the next writer would pick it up and be like, what the heck do I do with this stupid elf? I have no idea what the original because I think it might have been steve engelhart who started the elf but then he left before he could explain it and so uh-huh. it just became this running thing in defenders so yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then of course uh the 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 70s were yeah part of it was i i seem to recall like stan lee would would, would go out to colleges mm-hmm. not just yeah. school yes. kids he would bring the marvel message to the college youngins and it it was a very, very a very cool time to be mm-hmm. a uh, a Marvel guy because you yeah. thought, well, hey, he's talking to college mm-hmm. kids. I, right. I want to be a college mm-hmm. kid <laughs> when I'm seven, uh-huh. I guess, you know. <laughs> but uh, but no, I the the seventies was a 
very crazy good time for, yeah. for Marvel. Yeah, no, uh, one thing uh, I, I, I almost skipped over that I do want to mention now that I think about it is I feel like Roy Thomas is an unsung hero of Marvel. Um, you know, he was the guy that came in as sort of a junior writer you know in the 60s he took over almost all of the books once stan left them you know he did a stint on all of them um except for spider-man uh he did spider-man after jerry conway uh left but he didn't take it over from stan mm-hmm. um but the thing is roy stuck around through even into the 90s he was still writing books for marvel and i feel like more than oh, yeah. anyone roy was a force for keeping that sort of cohesion to the Marvel Universe. And it's also a, a thing where, you know, when I go back and read Silver Age books, or early early Bronze Age, whatever you want to call it, you know, the, the late 60s, early 70s books, like I've mentioned before, I don't think Stan has the best dialogue. I'll read a Roy Thomas book, and I feel like he understood the way people talk a lot better than Stan did, or at least was more, was better at putting that onto the comic page. Roy Thomas got um, comic book continuity. Like I, that was, Mm, you mentioned that he understood and championed that more so than, Mm. I mean, I wonder if he's like that, like in, in his daily life, you know, like he has breakfast and he goes, you know, oddly enough, I had this same breakfast 74 <laughs> weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and since he had been, been able to take over for all these books from Stan, he had written all these characters. Yeah, it's it, it was one of it was definitely one of the strong points uh, about Marvel was the, this mm. idea that the that the story would 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 go from issue to issue and sometimes go into other books as well. Right. That was always mm-hmm. uh I, as a kid, I did in the seventies. I didn't have the access to to a, a steady supply of comics, and so sometimes I'd go back to the same convenience store where I bought the the Fantastic Four last month, and they wouldn't have Fantastic Four this month. They'd have something else, and so it, as cool as it was, it was it was frustrating as a fan, but also like it made me want to get more of them. Anytime I'd see that see last ish, <laughs> and I'd be like, No, I don't have last ish. <laughs> who who has issues? Here's the really cool ish. thing, Mark. You got into comics uh, in the seventies. I got into comics in the nineties, but it's the same because it was the same. You know, like I started reading like X Men because the whole reason I started reading comics was because of the X Men cartoon from the nineties. But it was the fact right. that Marvel was interconnected like that had me branching off to read other books. It was those asterisks that said you got to read this thing, and I'm like, oh crap! Well, I want to find that thing, you know. And then it was even or going to a back issue like, oh, this was some. Something from like issue number 230 of Uncanny X-Men. Oh crap, gotta find raid the back issue bin. You know, those dollar bins? I love dollar bins. Because like you wouldn't normally find oh, yeah. X-Men because X-Men was always overpriced in those days. But um probably still is. But you would find like these great creative stories, like these defenders issues. Great reads for a buck. You know, and this is when dollar you know, yeah. comics are more like two dollars. Right. So, you know, um, it it was great, you know, or 50 cent bins even sometimes you'd find. So, you know, this idea of Marvel having this rich here, you know, people always say like, oh, well, we can't say this comic is issue number 400 because readers won't read it. You know, nobody new will come into that because they'll think they have to read 400 issues. I saw that as like, 
oh, this is really awesome. There's all this story here, you know, like, and, and I, you know, I knew I was never going to find them all, but, you know, I, I'd like to read a lot of that and find out what happened, you know. I saw an issue 400 as, ooh, neat, there's been 399 of these <laughs> that I'd like to uh, right. put down. Yeah, old 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 school fans look at issue four hundred and go challenge accepted. <laughs> right, <laughs> only four hundred. I got this. It also means they must be doing something right to have gotten to issue four hundred. So this must be a good read, you know. Yeah, we yeah, it's a it's it truly is a different time period. Uh, and uh, and I'm not saying uh, you know, talking about like what's happening right now, I'm not saying that we need to snap back to these old numbers, but we, but there's this weird sort of truism, you know, that the number one sells better than Mm. any of the other comics. And, and that's as may be. And yet I think what really matters to people is that you can tell a story with a, with a through line. That's always been the strength Mm. of Marvel comics. That and something else, I think I've mentioned it here in regard to the movies, but this is the really good time to to bring this up. That shared world anthology, uh, as a kid, uh, you know, before I even had that term in my head and knew what it was, one of the things that, uh, like my friend Joe, uh, I loved about Marvel Tales and Marvel 2 and 1 was that you got to see uh, The Thing or Spider-Man mm-hmm. with different superheroes across the Marvel Universe. And, and in their own books, whenever Spider-Man and the Human Torch would uh, would cross paths, there's a great episode, <laughs> uh, great episode, there's a great issue where uh, they meet on the top of the Statue of Liberty and are having a conversation about well, basically stuff. Um, those, uh, what I call the quiet moments uh, in the Marvel Universe, are, are were some of my favorite things. Um, in one of the early Marvel two-in-ones, Captain America co-stars, and there's a page uh, of them talking in the Baxter building, uh, drinking coffee. And it's only one page because back then you mm-hmm. could you, the storytelling was compressed and also expanded. But th- but that one page of them like taking a pause to talk about World War II, which they you know both had some experience with in some capacity, was uh, was just was just what I loved. You know the idea mm-hmm. that these guys were friends when they weren't fighting or or you know that sort of thing, and uh, th- that was something. Uh, DC never really got that. Uh, they had the book World's Finest, but it it really wasn't until Teen Titans restarted in the 1980s that they were able to sort of plug into that uh ongoing sort of soap mm-hmm. opera the x-men picked it up and figured out how to do it with uh with uh claremont and um and lynn Wayne, but really claremont uh you know he does uh, there were there were several episodes of other issues where the x-men would be out on a night on the town and Spider-Man would just swing by and say, Hey, uh, how are so-and-so and so-and-so? And they go, Oh yeah, they're still dating. And he'd go, okay, great. I gotta go. And he, it's funny. Go. Well, on the flip side of that, I read an iron fist that Claremont wrote where he like, you know, meets the X-Men because they, um, you know, uh, Misty Knight is roommates with Jean gray and you know, all that kind of stuff. But, but, um, 
funny thing you bring that up though about X-Men in particular because John Byrne it's one of the fun like one of the quotes in in this book that I read that is uh is kind of fun is John Byrne was you know like that was one of his criticisms with Claremont is Claremont might just want an issue where like Cyclops just sits around the apartment talking with people and it's like no you don't get it that's that's good you know <laughs> like it doesn't all have to be like action set pieces and everything you know like that that kind of interaction that personal part is part of what makes X-Men so fantastic um i will i'll I'll tell you my one of my all-time favorite comics from the from that period is marvel two-in-one number 51 it is the thing guest starring the beast Hmm. wonder man ms marvel (laughs) jarvis and um who else nick fury nick fury thank you i I, I literally read this two weeks ago (laughs) Peter Gillis wrote it. It's 19 pages. It's not even like, you know, the full thing because they had an ad for Johnson Smith and on every other page. But uh, the whole thing is about the thing showing up for the uh, annual Avengers poker game. Mm. I was going to ask about the poker games because that was one of those personal things that even up to when I'm reading comics, the thing still has his poker games. Yeah, that poker game is huge. Well, this is the one in, in this was the Avengers thing with the, the thing here. And uh, uh, Iron Man and Cap can't make it. So Jarvis invites Ms. Marvel and, and Wonder Man and uh, Ms. Marvel mm-hmm. cleans the floor with them uh, at poker. Uh, which is awesome. And and then of course, uh, Nick Fury gets the call that the, the helicarrier is under attack and he's got to go, he bring, you know, he, he basically brings the poker game, uh, to go, uh, route the invaders. Uh, and it's, uh, it's such a wonderful, cause really honest, you could tell that the poker game was really the thing that he wanted to write. It wasn't so much the, you know, the, the fight and the helicarrier as it was, uh, you know, the thing standing in the kitchen, uh, yelling to Jarvis going, yo, a woman, you brought a woman to the poker game and she does the worst thing a woman can do in a poker. She wins. And Jarvis goes, she is quite good. Isn't she? I haven't seen playing like that since I was in the RAF. And, and the thing goes, uh, Jarvel, buddy, uh, you think you could lend me a fiver? <laughs> Man, as a kid, I read that thing until the cover fell off as a kid. Uh, but that but that to me is just it's and, and it's it's good because it's it's all character. Like the whole thing is character pieces. Uh, every 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 line of dialogue, it reinforces who these people are, what they're all about. There's a great scene mm. where they're beating people up and things got a guy and he's throwing him and Ms. Marvel's got a guy and she's throwing him and he goes, you know, Miss Sim, uh, you fight almost as good as you play poker. And she says, thanks, so do you. <laughs> and he says, oh, hearty, hard lady. That's good. <laughs> yeah, man. So, uh, you know, that's, that to me is, uh, by the, by the bronze age, they just had like all of these, um, second and third tier characters that they had created, couldn't find a, uh, a running thing for. And so they all just kind of, uh, became sort of the, the, the mm. backdrop, you know, the B teams for all these A-list characters. And that, and, and even though, uh, Michael Shaban says that he regrets the bronze age as, as feeling like he missed out on all the good stuff. I disagree with him. Uh, and as I've disagreed with him <laughs> about a great many things, uh, Hmm. Uh, I, and probably need to do a website about it one day, but, uh, but no, you didn't miss anything. You know, you just had to, you had to be patient and, uh, find your books, uh, without 
you know, there were, there were more things to choose from. And so, uh, that embarrassment of riches, uh, created some really, it, it was, it was some really good alchemy, yeah. you know, uh, that and Slurpee cups. <laughs> oh God. Oh, those Marvel Slurpee cups were the best things ever. You know, another thing that didn't start until the eighties that I always loved was the annual West coast, East coast Avengers baseball game. That was uh, that was definitely uh, an attempt to sort of uh, get the poker game magic. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the and the the West Coasters being upset because the East Coast always got the gods. Right. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, so yeah, I mean, the seventies though. I mean, it's a time when you've got the political upheaval with Watergate. You've got the drug addiction. You've got student uh, protests you've got you know uh, a lot of racial upheaval and things of that nature and that's kind of reflected in the comics in the time period too right you know there's a lot of a lot of that's making its way in there I was telling the story before I had to, to put my daughter to bed about how they went they pulled the code from an issue of Spider-Man one time just because yep. they were like we want to tell a story about addiction and the code is such a straitjacket because it's we're trying to tell a very positive story about how drugs are bad, but because of the way the code is, we can't even do that. We're not glorifying right. it, you know. Right. So they, you know, Stan, you know, made the decision to that they would pull the code from the book rather than you know cave in and just not good story. Um, so uh, you know, getting getting with all that as a backdrop, you know, we're in the seventies. We've been talking about the fun stuff in the seventies. What's a character that you feel is sort of quintessential to this period that you really like? Um, so <laughs> let's let's start with uh, you this time, Mark. Shang Chi, Master of Kung Fu. All right. Um, the Kung Fu movie craze was was uh, big. And, uh, yeah. Marvel, uh, has always followed the trends. Uh, we, we got, we got black heroes, we got female heroes yeah. and we got martial arts heroes and, uh, Shang-Chi, uh, the, uh, son of Fu Manchu, which they can't do anymore because of copyright stuff. But, uh, man, he, and he, that book, Deadly Hands of Kung Fu ushered in, Iron Fist and Mantis and all of these great uh, adventure style characters. Uh, I love the intrigue. I love the sort of uh, Enter the Dragon, Arman Flint kind of vibe that was mm -hmm. in the books. Uh, it was just it, to me. To me, this it's it wears its seventiness <laughs> on its sleeve for the world to see, and that sleeve is brocade rope and that uh the fist coming out of that sleeve uh will uh smack your nose uh that's how cool it is <laughs> all right awesome uh will what is a character that you like that came out of the 70s oh gosh uh i mean i gotta go with with my team the x-men i gotta go with oh, phoenix okay. sure okay. uh because uh you know of course at the time they did you know the phoenix saga turned into phoenix the dark phoenix saga you know there was no even thought about making that story anything other than Gene's power evolving into into you know pure mm -hmm. evil. You know there was no Phoenix Force. There was no retconning her into being at the bottom of of the of, of the, the bay ocean. And, right, yeah. right. In, in the, a pod. In, in a cocoon, healing <laughs> yeah. up. There was there was none of that. It was the mystery of she crash. She saves the ship. She crash lands. She comes out totally different. 
there's the mystery. What's going on? You know, like there's here's a character that's been around, you know, since X-Men number one. And she's going through these radical changes and what's happening. It really pushed the envelope at that point in time, leading into, you know, arguably one of the best stories, you know, in the X-Men history with Dark Phoenix Saga. Um, you know, to where she totally went absolutely crazy, and 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 a game changer for Marvel mm. Comics. That was the oh, first 100%. time they, they they dealt with a character death on screen that was a, a popular mm. character. Yeah. Huge, huge. Yeah. I mean, you, you've had you had redemption stories before of villains turning good, but you never really had a story of a of a hero turning bad. You know, they they yeah, will. With it. Do you want me to blow your mind? Please, absolutely. Do you know the original ending to the Phoenix Saga? Oh, yeah. Was that yeah. the Shi'ar just lobotomize her and put her back and everything's fine? Yeah, yeah. Jim Shooter's like, no, she's got uh, to be punished. Uh -huh. She's done, man. She killed an entire civilization, mm -hmm. you know, of the... Uh... When she when she ate the sun, but really pushed the envelope. I mean, like, but can, can, just imagine, like, how different would we feel about that whole storyline if that had been the ending, right? Yeah. Well, it would have changed X Men comics to this day, right? Yeah, you know, and and, she, and people people Jim Shooter is kind of a villain for a lot of folks, but uh, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, that was a good call that he made. Mm -hmm. uh, you yeah. know, uh, it, it, it was a good call. I mean, and, and that oh. character and the story that came from it really pushed the X Men to the the major spotlight that that they still enjoy. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, I, I completely agree. Joe, were you saying something? I was going to say, I wonder if they had lobotomized her, would they have found that piece of her brain in the pod at the bottom <laughs> of the brain? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? When, oh, when they no, wanted we, to start... we can re we can re lobotomize her now. <laughs> yeah, in the in the '90s, it was a strange time. So who knows? They might have still they might have done that. Um, so Joe, what's a what's a quintessential '70s character for, for you? Um, uh, let's see. Gosh, um, Jack of Hearts. Wow! Oh, God, deep cut. Deep cut. Yeah. Well played. <laughs> I like. Because this dude is just, you, you can't sum him up in a sentence. The dude yeah. is a playing, he has a playing card costume for no mm -hmm. reason. Right. He's, he's not like the DC Comics had the Royal Flesh Gang where everybody has a, is a, is a suit of cards. Mm -hmm. This dude just has a card suit. That's it. There's no reason why he has it. Well, his 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 alter ego name is Jack Hart, and so uh, so, so, so and of course, of course, <laughs> yeah. and I love that too. Like, I, and that's another. I, I love when the Marvel names were also their superhero names, like yes. Ulysses Claw, <laughs> yeah, or Eric Killmonger, which is right. that's my favorite. <laughs> But, um, yeah, who's not going to turn out as a villain with a name like that? Exactly. Well, a lot of people don't know that uh, Mark Finn is a pseudonym. My real name is Stanley Death Threat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, my parents were big Marvel Comics readers, and uh, yeah. so, you know. But yeah, the, the, ja ja the Jack of Hearts just, uh, to me, said the 70s because yeah. he was one of 30 guys who would show up every now and then you get, you'd be like, Oh, Ooh, I remember him from the last time I saw him in Marvel two and one. Right. Because mm -hmm. he's just goofy as heck. And they owned it. There was no, um, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This guy's wacky. There was no wackiness about Jack of hearts. No, he, he was had, kind of a serious character. 
very mm-hmm. serious. He had a he was I think trapped in the suit too. Yes, which is even worse for this poor man. Mm-hmm. This poor bastard. <laughs> He's trapped in a in the loudest suit in the world, and um, uh, because e- everybody in Marvel is tortured somehow. Yes, and yeah. Jack of Hearts is stuck in this awful costume. <laughs> And just owns it. No one makes fun of Jack of Hearts' costume in the comics. He's just mm-hmm. like, well, there, there's the guy in the suit of guards. Right. Um, and uh, I just, I dug it. I, I, I dug him. And you know, guys like him, like Stingray, and yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That so that when when I think Jack of Hearts, that brings to mind all the other. Like there was an issue, uh, two issues of Defenders, where their their huckster Dollar Bill put out a a, a, pu- a publicity sh- uh, drive to bring in members, and every fourth string Marvel character <laughs> joined the crew in that issue, uh-huh. and it's hilarious. <laughs> and of course, Jack of Hearts is in it. And um, it's sixty three Marvel characters, and they go and they fight. Um, with two guys robbing a bank, mm-hmm. it's hilarious. <laughs> wow! But that—that's Marvel Comics in the seventies to me. Yeah, there you go, man. A great, great uh, deep cut. Yeah, yeah totally. Oh, no, I like that because, uh, yeah, where I'm gonna go, where I will always go when it's seventies comics is I'm gonna cheat a little bit because it's really two in one, and by that I'm gonna talk about my buddies, Power Man and Iron Fist, Heroes for Hire. Uh, um, totally. I I don't know what it is about Iron Fist ever since I first saw that character in yeah. uh, a, a Spider-Man comic, actually. I have thought that he was just really cool. You know, something about mm-hmm. the whole idea of, you know, being this, like, super zen guy who could, like, channel all his energy and just, like, be able to do this miraculous thing with his with his kung fu was just really cool to me for some reason. And... He's not just a kung fu guy. He also has power. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. And, and, like, even beyond that, you know, like, is one of the things, you know, the first thing that I read him in was the Maximum Carnage crossover in Spider-Man. And it's, like, because uh, Carnage's girlfriend can project, like, insanity... Like, but Iron Fist just like walks through, and he's so serene that he can actually calm down everyone around him, you know, <laughs> because he's just this like ocean of cal- like this calm like sort of thing, you know, wave that goes through the crowd. And I was just like, man, that's kind of cool, you know, <laughs> just to be like that, like low key, you know. So, um, but yeah, going back and reading those books because I just did a binge like a year or so ago of. You know, it coincided kind of with the Netflix stuff of of those Heroes for Hire books. And that is a really, really good comic. I mean, you know, Claremont solid. wrote for it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, um, you know, you got you got quite a few different uh, Marvel writers writing for it. But, uh, you know, um, just the idea of taking like these two sort of 70s genres of, you know, the, mm-hmm. the black exploitation and the Kung Fu and merging them together and taking even the idea of, you know, Luke Cage 
who's this guy from the streets and taking Danny Rand, who is, you know, if you want to have like someone, you know, that's, that's, you know, as, as, as far removed from that as you can get, not only is he super privileged, rich guy, but he's also been on this mystical, like hidden world for half his life, you know? So it's like as far removed from the streets as you can get, but then you've got this really cool friendship. Yeah. Between the two of them and the fact that, you know, they can have some of those discussions and things about, you know, what's going on in society right now, because, you know, Luke does feel that Danny's kind of clueless about things. And, you know, but Danny wants to learn more about the world now that he's back. And so he's kind of like, no, I'm going to like, you know, have a job like a regular person. I'm going to, you know, like, you know, have, you know, like those kinds of things, you know, like have those kinds of things so that I can be like amongst the people and everything. So I really like that. I love that book. There's some really off the wall things that happen in that book. There was this really weird issue that somebody apparently was watching some doctor who and decided to throw it into <laughs> heroes for hire. They never called the guy, the doctor, but he had a, a, like a room that was bigger on the inside than the outside. And the things they were fighting looked just like Daleks. And it was like, I see what you're doing here. <laughs> you mm. know? So, um, but uh, and there was one where it was like they had to re- like uh, somebody stole the Fantastic Car because it was at a car show, <laughs> and since Luke had been a member of the Fantastic Four for five minutes, at one point it was like up to him to like get the Fantastic Car back, and it was just <laughs> like weird stories in there. But it was fun. Yeah, it was a really good read, and I think I posted this on Facebook. Was reading it, I was like, "There's some really topical stuff." You know, for now, for reading in 2000-whatever it was when I was reading it, 1718, that's in this 70s comic book that still works today. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so yeah, God, it's so sad because it's like, I want to talk about all the characters, but, you know, <laughs> we'll be here all night long if we do that. Um, one character that I'm kind of surprised didn't get mentioned for 70s is Howard the Duck. Well, sure. you, you, you gave us just one. <laughs> I know. Yeah. If, yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It's definitely hard. They've, uh, they've tried to do stories with him since the 70s. Yeah. It's, not, it's not the same. No, not at all, actually. Yeah. No. And it's I not agree just with because that. the writer is different. It's because there was something about that with the weirdness of Marvel and pop culture in general mm-hmm. in the seventies that spawned Howard the duck that mm-hmm. you don't have since then. Yeah. 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 I, I definitely think Howard the duck was, it was, is that lightning in a bottle concept for the, for the seventies bronze age Marvel. Uh, everything else you can kind of point to and go, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. You know, but Howard the Duck was the was the it's it's the absurdist. It's almost Dada-esque uh, with what he did with it. You know, uh, it's it's completely of the Marvel Universe and yet also completely separate from it. You know, yeah. So. And I love that no matter what anybody says about Marvel movies, the first one was Howard the Duck. 
Yes. I know. Film, oh. No matter what, anybody, <laughs> and I, I dig it. I mean, yeah. no, I don't. I don't. I don't necessarily dig the movie. I'm saying it's <laughs> but, but the in yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact, the fact that it was the first one at a time when none of the other characters were tenable is is interesting. Yeah. The fact it, that DC was doing the Superman movies. Yeah, I wonder if that's George Lucas's name. Like he wanted to do Howard the Duck, and he was, you know, coming off Star Wars. So yeah, he's uh, a huge Howard the Duck fan. Yeah, yeah. He he wanted the yeah. He 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 thought they could pull it off. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> I enjoy it. <laughs> but then again, I was like six when it came out, and I saw it for the first time. So your mileage may vary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you had duck nudity. I mean, come on. <laughs> no, yeah, come but on. that still yeah. weirds me out. Like, why did Lucas feel like that was an essential element to have in the movie? <laughs> I, um, so many we'll, questions. We'll never. Yeah, we'll never know. <laughs> so uh, okay, we are like. Are, we're, are we halfway done? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I, I don't think we're going to be able to cover everything, but I, I really do want to talk about the 80s and 90s because if I'm not mistaken, Will, that's when you came in, right? Yep, totally. And and that's when I came in. So I do want to talk about the 80s and 90s a little bit. Um, you know, we kind of mentioned Shooter. Uh, Shooter was a big creative force in the 80s in Marvel. Um you know, like like Mark mentioned, he's kind of a villain. They they actually burned him in effigy at one point. The uh, the writers and artists. <laughs> so you know, you can tell how some people felt about him at the uh, at the company. But uh, you know, he is responsible for better or worse with the age of crossovers, um, which which started with Secret Wars, um, Contest of Champions. Uh, yes. Oh, Contest of Champions is so good. But, uh, but yeah, so, so they, 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 you know, Marvel started this whole idea of the mega crossover, right? And, uh, of, of, you know, we throw all the characters into, uh, you know, a particular storyline and, uh, you know, that's, you know, it's something that I, it's been taken to kind of a ridiculous extreme, I think, um, where it became like just an annual event kind of thing and everybody has to pause what's going on in their books. But at least at the time, you know, Secret Wars was a big deal. Right, because, you know, you had every Marvel character hanging out, you know, in this one storyline. The thing is, um, we, we look back on Secret Wars and go, well, now crossovers could be done in a different and better way. But at the time, this is all we had. We didn't mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. what crossovers could do and what they and and I, I, I look back. In fact, I, I've, I've reread Marvel's from around that time. And it lasted 12 issues, and the, all the characters disappeared the same month. But then they mm-hmm. came back the next month. Right. So you right. still had 11 issues of Secret Wars to find out that, to find out why the Hulk came back with a broken leg. Mm-hmm. And nothing really changed. While later crossovers would change stuff. But Secret Wars, not really. But no. uh, but but that wasn't that. But the the again, we didn't know that at the time. We didn't know that's what crossovers could be. As it stood, it was just a good melting pot to have all these guys who maybe you've never heard of uh, as mm-hmm. selling points 
in a giant melting pot and just have them just smash against each other. Yeah, we're not familiar with the first time I read Secret Wars. Of course, I didn't know any of the backstory behind the 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 reasoning why and all that. I read it and I'm like, this this dialogue's kind of clunky. Like, <laughs> like this seems like it's kind of written for people that don't really know much about these characters. And come to find out, that's exactly why because they you know were trying to sell toys. But but yeah, right. at the time it was hugely successful. I mean, you know, to me it hasn't aged well. But uh, you know, it like like Joe said, it was all we had at the time. Well, yeah, and I mean, that's the thing, and that's why the crossovers became such a big deal, because crossovers, just like number one issues, they sell. Right. You know, it's and an so it's, 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 it, right, yeah, we, we, we you know, we're, we're the snake eating its own tail here, because, you know, we, we fund the problem, <laughs> and then we complain about the crossovers, you know, so, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, that, 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 you know, the readers kind of create the thing that they then complain about, but, yeah, I mean, Shooter was apparently very heavy-handed. He apparently, you know, would give, you know, creators who had been, you know, writing and or drawing for years, like, report cards, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> you did this wrong or that wrong or, you know, whatever, and, and kind of insulted some people and ruffled some feathers. So, um, you know, they, they, it got to a point where, where they, they he was just basically forced out by the company that bought Marvel in the, uh, in the late 80s. But, um... But but we do have that legacy of shooter. But the other thing was, and I and I do wonder if this is part of the thinking behind Secret Wars because it did change some things. Like the thing wasn't on the Fantastic Four afterwards for a right. while because you know he stayed behind and some things like that. Is shooter really wanted to shake Marvel up? He, you know, that's why we get like Eric Masterson and Beta Ray Bill introduced in Thor. We get, um, you know, Falcon, you know, introduced uh, in in Captain America, and it was the sort of idea of he wanted to sort of like, re, you know, change the heroes into new characters. You know, keep okay, the mantle. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta stop you right okay. here because this is, uh, this is a thing. Um, this all goes back to Kirby. Uh, in the eighties is when Kirby started, uh, saying very vocally that, uh, he didn't get any of his art and wanted his artwork back from Marvel mm. comics. And, uh, when they politely said no, even though they've been giving away pages of his artwork to visiting dignitaries for years, even though they were using a stack of old originals to prop up uh, a, a rickety table in one office. <laughs> it, it, it was all, it was no. And this was all during the shooter run yeah. here. Well, um, what happened is uh, he, Jack got legal counsel uh, and mm. it, became widely understood that, you know, Jack's fingerprints creatively are on all of the books that are selling right now because he's the guy that came up with them along with Stan Lee. And everybody went, oh God, what could he sue us for? And they said, well, if he designed the characters, then then they get it, then then he can he can claim part of this if you guys don't play ball with him. And so they made a list of the characters that had designed and then changed them so that they could say that Jack – he didn't own what currently was happening in the, in the uh, comics because we're not using Jack's designs anymore. Now, all of this got handled 
behind the scenes and Kirby got smart back and got a payment and they dropped the idea of, of the suit and they even started putting his name on stuff and the, and the relationship got better. But this whole thing was an attempt to avoid uh, having their characters taken away from them. If you look at the time period and look at this, this three, two, three month period, um, Spider-Man gets the black costume Thor becomes Beta Ray Bill. Iron mm. Man's armor changes to silver and red. Um, there's this, it's right all of the big stuff. Things stays behind because they can redesign the Fantastic Four costumes, but they couldn't redesign Thing. And the Thing was, the Thing's look is in effect his costume. So when we talk about Jim Shooter being a villain, that's the level of villainy that we have for Jim Shooter. Now, that's not to say that these stories weren't great. That's not to say that they didn't make lemonade out of their lemons. I mean, certainly we all love Beta Ray Bill and Frog Thor. None of that is in dispute. And and there are some people who, yes. who adore the black costume. And, and, and one of the best things about Secret Wars was we see how he gets the black costume on the alien planet. But – it it just I never it never sat well with me because that was always uh, the, I look back that period of time reminds me of the time that they tried to hose Kirby out of the, the credit that was due him and his original artwork. So and you'll notice that none of that stuff is around now. Oh, they've you know Beta Ray Bill still runs around, but he's yeah. got a different hammer and blah blah blah. Um, but the black suit is and the black suit's not somebody. So they took all that stuff and reused it again. But nobody's still doing it, you know. So so you're right, it, and it was a shakeup yeah. totally. But there, there was an ulterior motive for it. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut across the bow there, but you needed to hear yeah, that. I, I, whoa. Well, I mean, and again, this is, I'm fresh off of reading this book. I'm not sure that's entirely true, though, because Shooter then, when there was so much pushback against the changes, went to making his new universe, right? You know, which was an experiment that nobody remembers because it only lasted like a year or two. But Marvel had a, a group of books that they called New Universe that was basically another Earth where, you know, like superheroes were new in the 80s. So it wasn't like we've had superheroes since World War II kind of thing. You know, uh, it, it's it's like Shooter still wanted to create his sort of like new comic, you know, world. If, if he couldn't oh, change yeah, the yeah. existing well, that, one, yeah, that, you know, he would create has, a new yeah, one. That, those are totally different. I mean, because he did that with Epic. And there was a lot of stuff that he tried during this time to sort of, you know, yeah, broaden the footprint. Absolutely. Uh, mm -hmm. With with mixed results, shall we say. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly, I mean, I mean we, we haven't really talked about it. I don't know if we wanted to talk about, you know, the, the Kirby situation on this one. But, you know, and, and Ditko's the same way. I mean, you know, once Kirby started, you know, agitating, you know, Ditko started as well. Um, you know, and, and the thing is... You know, that gets into all sorts of legal wrangling of, you know, was it expected of them to, you know, was it work for hire? Did they know, Did was there any reasonable expectation that they would own the characters that they created it, and it's stuff a, It's like a separate that. rabbit hole, yeah. but this, but it's the, it's the eighties is when the rabbit hole first opened up. You know what I mean? So, yeah. uh, mm. it's, it, it is worth mentioning. And I, I wasn't going to, I was going to keep it laudatory, but I, I wanted to just make sure that the. That that new those new things were th there was an undercurrent of of smarmy to it, lot a lot a lot of shooter stuff is smarmy. I know he he yeah. gave us cloak and dagger, and yet, 
Mm. <laughs> I, I love cloak and dagger actually <laughs> we're gonna talk about a comic from the 80s that's that's the one for me i i i think cloak and dagger is amazing um and, and i i actually wish the tv show was more like the comic but i still like the tv show um but uh but yeah the other big uh thing that i i was gonna talk about with the 80s and 90s was the the idea of the superstar artist you know, that we get with people like, uh, you know, like the Jim Lees and the Frank Millers and, you know, these guys that are writing and drawing their own comics. You know, they, they you know. Todd um, McFarlane with Adjectable they later went on. Todd McFarlane is a very good example of that. Mark Silvestri, you know, you got you got quite a few of these guys, you know, in the 90s uh, coming out. Um, so, my fate now. My favorite artist that also did a lot of his own writing is is not probably considered a super like star artist, but I absolutely love Alan Davis um, and and everything that he does. Um, but uh, but yeah, so uh, you know, and then we had the whole thing with uh, you know Spider Man with Todd McFarlane, uh, Jim Lee's X Men, John Byrne's my guy for this. John uh, Byrne, yeah, he's another great he, one. Fantastic Four. He came off of the X Men and and took over the Fantastic Four, and it is mo- anybody who's a Fantastic Four fan will say that after the first hundred issues, that it, Byrne is mm-hmm. is where the series is where the series kind of picks up. Um, and and he did a bunch of other stuff as well, but that I think the FF stuff that he did is 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 a high watermark both for him as an artist and as a writer yeah the other the other one for better or worse is rob liefeld <laughs> well i mentioned the zenith so you should mention the <laughs> um so uh, I talk about um, the peak, you should talk about the valley <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which and, and it's the explosion of men in this time period with the late 80s and the early 90s when they went from just having a single book well no i'm sorry early 80s they had two books they had new mutants right um and and, and they go from having two books to having you know five then six you know then nine by the late 90s if you count the ones with individual characters with their own books as well as the various team books um so, Will, I know you came into Marvel in the 80s, 90s period. What's, what to you is like the great storyline of that, you know, of that time period? Oh, gosh. I mean, <laughs> once again, where do you start, right? I mean, to me, yeah. the, to me, the 80s was my introduction to Marvel. I mean, my first uh-huh. issue, Uncanny X-Men 218. Um, the, the, new, the new class versus the Juggernaut. Fantastic Isn't it amazing issue. how you can remember your first issue? Oh man, cover cover March two, uh, 1987, <laughs> cover by Ar- Arthur Adams. Yeah. You know, dynamic shot of Rogue, Psylocke, Dazzler, and Longshot. Mm. But uh, I mean, you got you got Burn on FF. You've got uh, you know you talk about the superstar artist writer Walt Simonson. Yeah, he's another uh, good one. Yeah, that entire. That entire run of him on Thor just elevated that entire run mm-hmm. to new heights that I hadn't seen in a long, long time. You mm-hmm. know, like they did Ragnarok. You know, I mean that was amazing. Um, I mean that was the first introduction of me to David on the Hulk. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and that right there defined that character for me. You know, sure. 
Um, so to narrow it down to one story, eesh, I don't know that I can do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a time constraint rather than a uh, preference constraint. Right. Right. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I'd probably have to go with uh, Peter Davis' extended run on the Hulk. Mm. You know, yeah. starting with starting with three forty, because I, I th- my first issue of his was three forty because of the Fall of Mutant storyline from X Men mm-hmm. took me over to that Hulk versus Wolverine, and then of course that to me culminated with Honey I Shrunk the Hulk <laughs> in three seventy seven, which actually you know a bit of a cheat came out in like ninety one, but whatever, where they. He broke down the Hulk to multiple personality disorder, uh-huh. merged all the personalities together, and created the what we now know as Professor Hulk. But uh, the way he just the way he made that character just so awesome, um, you know. Of course, by that point, I had like surface knowledge of the Hulk through the TV show and whatnot. Uh, but to me, he was always just the Savage Hulk, and what Peter David brought to it was just this incredible character development. And he took his time with the storytelling, and you know it was just amazing character work on his part. And so I'd have to, I'd have to come down on that one. Yeah. Oh God, Peter David. Here's the thing. You know, I've read Peter David. I've read his comics. I read his novels. I've seen his TV shows. Sure. He he does this with everything he does. When it's somebody else, you know, like he takes somebody else's property. He thinks about it, yeah. and he comes up with these things, like these ideas of, and again picking like things from the past and like putting them together in a whoever thought of before that makes perfect sense yeah so like the whole idea that the hulk well we've had these different iterations of the hulk and what does that mean and then being like oh well, i'm gonna explain that and here's how it is you know how it works and you know putting the whole psychological spin on it and that's they're all different aspects of bruce banner's personality yeah and it, it, just genius right um, <laughs> and peter david revamped x-factor Mm-hmm. In the in the nineties, and I love his you know, X Factor. It, it was fantastic. And you mm-hmm. talked about we talked about earlier about how there's those issues where just nothing happens. There was uh-huh. an entire issue of X Factor where they were going to see a psychologist after a troublesome mission. Yeah, yes. they, 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 they Doc had, Samson. Yeah, yeah, ended up being Doc Samson. Oh, <laughs> spoiler alert! Come on, guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, for a 20, 25 year old comic, spoiler alert. But the entire comic was nothing but character development, and it was fantastic yeah. the way he the way he did it. My my favorite part of that comic, because I know the exact issue you're talking about, 86. is is Quicksilver. Yeah, right. because yeah. the idea that for Quicksilver. He's always at super speed, and he has to slow himself down to interact with people. He broke him down to a level that I'd never even considered, and it was amazing. And to, to, to take Quicksilver and explain like the reason he's always been this arrogant jerk is because him, we're all moving in slow motion, yeah. and he lives in this tedious world where everything is going so excruciatingly slowly blew my mind made me love quicksilver he is remains one of my favorite mutants <laughs> yeah. yeah that entire issue was cool from start to finish you got so deep into every mm-hmm. character on there you know even strong guy got got his chance to shine mm-hmm. on that issue you know and it, he was just kind of a one note before that but i mean yeah peter david you know, MVP. Yeah, I mean, David, though, is, is you know, like I was saying, you know, like the, the crossovers have the bad point. You know, David's been one of the most, like, outspoken people against crossovers, you know, or at least cr- crossovers that aren't driven by the creators on the books. Sure. You know, because that's the reason why he only did X-Factor for a year. 
Oh yeah, was yeah. that he he didn't want to do the annual X Men crossover. It, you know, he didn't want putting it to put his stories on hold. Yeah, it got in the way of his storytelling. Right, exactly. And he left Hulk when they started doing full on whole Marvel crossovers again, and he was getting sick of that. Well, it was the it was the aftermath of Onslaught. They wanted to bring back right. Savage Hulk, and it completely disregarded everything he'd created up to that point. Yep. Tore it all down. Um, but for me. You know, because, again, there are so many good storylines I could talk about. Uh, since you took uh, Peter David on the Hulk, I'm going to go to the storyline that I kind of came in with, which was the Fatal Attractions uh, on X-Men. Oh, yeah. Great call. That was the annual X-Crossover in 93, um, where uh, Wolverine loses his adamantium. Because not only did that crossover bring Magneto back in a big way, which Magneto, again, because I came in from the X-Men cartoon, uh, I already had an affinity for Magneto. He is one of my, you know, he, he was my favorite villain at the time. You know, Doom has since sort of supplanted him. But at the time, Magneto was my favorite villain. And, uh, you know, bringing Magneto back. And what they did with Wolverine was fantastic. Because I always like stories where you take a character and you remove the thing that defines them and then sees what see what makes them tick. And that's what they did with Wolverine, because for so long it's been, you know, I got metal claws, rawr, I'm Wolverine. And and the thing is, Wolverine is one of the greatest characters when written by a great writer, and he's one of the worst characters when written by anyone else, because they just devolve to, I have claws, I stab things, me, you know, angry, grr, you know, and that's not interesting. But having Wolverine, because he loses the healing factor for a while, when he, because his body is just trying to adjust... And, and he's so messed up that he can't heal. He's got claws made of bone now, so they break. Yeah. You know, all of the stuff they did with Wolverine from that crossover onwards was great. Wolverine became such a great book to read, you know, during that period. Well, and they introduced, they introduced the, the, uh, the Acolytes, the followers of Magneto, mm-hmm. Exodus, which was a pretty good villain at the time. You had uh, Colossus getting disillusioned. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was heartbreaking because he lost his faith in, Mag- in Xavier's dream and turned to Magneto. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talked about Wolverine being handled correctly. Two writers, to me, really got Wolverine. That was Claremont and Larry mm-hmm. Hama. And, X- and Wolverine 75, the aftermath of his adamantium getting ripped out, was probably the best issue of Wolverine I'd ever read up to that point because it was like it was a blockbuster action summer movie. You know, him them trying to get back to Earth, him trying to hang on and stay alive. It was amazing. Wolverine riding around the countryside on his Harley with a, a katana was like the best thing ever. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's just like this this is great. You know, like I'll, I'll have more of this, please. Um yeah. so so yeah, no, no, no. And, and I mean even you know, Professor X getting to the point where he just, like, shuts down Magneto, literally. You know, like, you yeah. have done too much, you know, I and, and, you know, that leads into Onslaught and everything, you know, for better or worse there. But, you know, at the time, that was game-changing, right? 100%. And, of course, you know, don't forget the, uh, the Collector's Edition holographic covers. Yeah, well, yeah, that's a part of Marvel in the 90s that, that I don't really want to talk about is right. the, hey, here's a gimmicky cover, spent five bucks on this comic. Exactly. You know, for the Chromium Gatefold, you know, uh, edition. Ugh. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so Mark, um, were you... St- were, uh, totally, do you, yes. 
were you Absolutely, still collecting? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I am I am fifty, uh, and I'm not a hundred, so uh, right, I was sure, still sure. a kid in the eighties. Um, okay. <laughs> it's important to remember, and and so just sure. just to satisfy the two of you, you <laughs> Marvel zombie X Men chuckleheads, <laughs> I will tell you <laughs> why 1982 was the year for Marvel Comics, and it mm. was because that was the year that. The Wolverine four issue miniseries premiered, mm. written by Chris yep. Claremont with art by Frank Miller and Frank Miller. Joe Rubenstein. And mm. let me tell you something, that thing was the bomb. We'd already yeah. got this really cool Wolverine uh, in the X-Men, especially when uh, he takes on the Hellfire Club all by himself. And there was this implicit like badassness, you know, to him. But when they took him into the four-issue miniseries, which was uh, a new thing for for people to be doing miniseries, uh, this was an attempt to, you know, see if Wolverine could kind of hold his own. And what they decided to do with it was tell a story that was pretty much all character development. Yep. I mean, that's this is the thing that gives Wolverine the katana <laughs> that he drives around with on the back of the motorcycle, you know. So, uh, and and it's it's uh, Frank Miller uh, in full on um, Daredevil ninja drawing uh, magic uh, doing this sort of thing. So it uh, it's it's just a perfect. Uh, blend of these of these two creators working together and it's still a story that holds up uh it's uh great it's uh, it's one of the things that was a big chunk of what got used in the wolverine movie uh that was good um and so uh yeah this time period uh bronze age that we've been talking about and and this sort of space that leads to the modern age this is all the stuff that they've been drawing from the marvel comic or for the marvel movies from and the x-men movies mm-hmm. you know these th- this is the time period when all the magic was really happening so uh that wolverine was something i bought on the newsstands uh when it came out that that for that cover was just fantastic with the with the claws popped and the finger you know crooking his finger like come here let me show you something <laughs> Let me show you a little magic trick. I'm gonna make these claws disappear. Um, so yeah, that that one was uh, was I think one of the great uh, stories, uh, significant achievements. Um, we'd later get a Punisher five issue miniseries that would sort of set up him as the antihero. But this was really the first one that that hit that was a thing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. No. I mean, that's that's that's. That's a really good point. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, and it speaks to, I think, you know, Wolverine, I've always loved the... I don't know what, like, inspired Claremont to, like, put the Japanese aesthetic and background into Wolverine. But it, it, it elevates him so much more from, like, the original idea of he's this short little angry guy with claws. You well, know? Uh, it's just... It, it's real, it's... They, he created Wolverine, or, or they decided that Wolverine was going to ha- not have a past. Mm. And so, you know, he's he's the guy that sort of wandered into things fully formed like Ronan, you mm. know? Like, he, you know, that's the, that's the archetype that he is. He's the man with no name slash masterless samurai that uh, is currently running with the group. But uh, uh, it just, I think thematically it fits him perfectly because he's that mm. guy. Right. Yeah. 
He's the guy. He's the guy that you wouldn't think would be the one that would be the most dangerous person in the room, but totally is. Man, mm-hmm. that's every Clint Eastwood movie from Sergio Leone. That's all the Kira Kurosawa stuff. You know, the guy in the flail picking flowers. Oh, he's not a threat. Oh no, he just cut me in half. You know? <laughs> so yeah. yeah. All right, so Joe. 80s and 90s time period were you were you reading any comics in that period oh sure yeah yeah um what's something that sticks out for you west coast avengers yeah ah, there you go because oh. it was so superhero-y they took all the good avengers and put them <laughs> on the west coast <laughs> and it was steve englehart who was just kind of a genius as far as superhero-y stuff goes mm-hmm. and um there's a great uh maybe nine or ten issue series where they go back in time and they interconnect 40 years of marvel time travel stories mm. and they um they also fight villains from the desert one of which is named Butte <laughs> and another one is named Cactus <laughs> and that's how it starts that's issue one and then wow. it turns out that Hawkeye designed Moon Knight's weapons and it's just so continuity it's just like it's just like um, uh, it's, 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 it's breakfast cereal for a Marvel fan. It's like, num, 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 num. give me more yeah. of this. It was, it, it was just everything you could have asked for. It, mm-hmm. And, um, it, it, it wasn't ever as good as it was in those few issues mm. because yeah. they, there were like two dozen characters and everybody got cool stuff to do. And, um, they turned, uh, Hank Pym into a uh, into a non costumed mm-hmm. um, gadget guru. And, That's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. And um, and a, a zillion other things that they did. Um, but it was all top notch stuff, and it was just everything about the Avengers that had been missing mm-hmm. maybe since the seventies. And it was just just um, um, a bunch of superheroes getting together, hanging out, and then they had to fight something, yeah. and that was it. Yeah, it was it was more scaled back. You know, the Avengers, the East mm-hmm. Coast Avengers, were more epic. They'd been fighting all these like god level baddies, like uh, Gravitron and uh, Ultron and uh, mm-hmm. Count Nefaria and all that. And, and and yeah, West Coast had much more of a not a pulp vibe, but it was very, you know, very much a more fun. Uh, it was more of a romp. Exactly. Totally. And yeah. um, they, uh, and I mean, while, while the Avengers on the East Coast were fighting, you know, Thanos. Right. The <laughs> were fighting yeah. Butte, you know? um, to bring things full circle, I was there when they canceled West Coast Avengers and it was written, the, the comics, up until that last issue, which got a different writer, it was Roy Thomas writing West Coast Avengers at that period of time. So Exactly, yeah. And it it kind of petered out there toward the end. They decided, let's smoosh them all back together. 
and or actually no they didn't no, no they turned they, into force works <laughs> which was the most 90s comic <laughs> yes. of all time we're just gonna like take two words and smush them together and say that's the name of a superhero team <laughs> yeah yeah they, um, force works jesus it was, it was a mission it was the, a mission it, statement it, yeah it only uh, it only lasted like like a, uh, maybe nine or ten issues well, it was and, 25 it did last two years Oh, what? No, really? Yeah, yeah. Dude, and it, it ended God. with the crossing crossover when when um with with, with you know it was which was a Kang like storyline that crossed over into all the Avengers books and it crossed over into Force Works and it was basically the deconstruction of Force Works as well as you know they had a bunch of new creative directions for the for the actual Avengers characters that mm-hmm. then of course all got subverted by the Heroes Reborn um you know uh, kerfluffle when like licensed out the ff and avengers to uh uh jim lee and and rob liefeld to do like reboot versions of in its own universe and so yeah that ruffled <sighs> a lot of feathers right there anyway that's that's a whole lot of that's a rabbit hole but <laughs> i've decided to blame it all on force work okay <laughs> yeah although the writer at least for part of force works was dan abnett who eventually oh, yeah. revamped Guardians of the Galaxy, as yep. we know them mm-hmm. today. So he came out of that, survived. <laughs> he survived Force Works. Dan but, Abnett and Andy Lanning were the co-writers on all the issues of Force Works. Yeah. And, and I don't think it was wow. a bad book. I think, though, it was just... Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to gently override that opinion. Yeah, I think you're in the minority. Oh, there, fine. fine. I thought the artwork was bad in it. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, at least we, yeah. But they, there was, there was, it was, it was, the only way it could have been more 90s would have been if each page was chromium and foil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't know. There, there were some things that I liked, especially towards the end when they were starting to get into the whole crossing part of it. Because, like, the idea that since Kang is a time traveler, he could insert, like, a, a person into the team and, and retroactively, like, work them in so that everyone remembered them as always having been there. And there were some neat, like, sort of concepts that they threw out in that in that book. Using the Scarlet Witch's powers to identify problems before they happened, you know, because her ability powers would, like, point the computer towards where they needed to be, you know, and so Stuff like that. I thought there were some neat ideas at work in in Force Works. Let's let's just say that it was a really good uh, tryout to give these guys Guardians of the Galaxy down the road mm. and uh, leave it at that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. There you go. Fair enough. Yeah. Oh God. I, you know, I think I'm gonna start doing like more comics, like themed uh, uh, episodes because I want to talk more Marvel now but it, it, just talking about all of Marvel for 80 years is way too broad a brush <laughs> by far um, a little bit a little bit yeah <laughs> <laughs> our families forgot who we right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I have uh, I, I'm, I'm going to have to take my wife back to hospital it's crazy uh, we've gone so long that uh we're back in a chemo cycle. Uh, but, what have you done? <laughs> but before we go, what I want to do yes. is I want everybody to say, like, basically, what does Marvel mean for you? Why do you keep coming? You know, 80 years of comics. Now, you know, what what makes you come back to Marvel? Um, so let's start with you, Will. What what keeps me coming back? Um, yeah. What What is the quintessential Marvel thing that makes you come back? Or you know, list several things, whatever. Just you know, I mean, how? I, 
how, how do you narrow that down? I mean, it's got to be just... <laughs> well, well, there's a flavor to Marvel that's different from DC, that's different from Image, that's different from whoever, you know, like, what, what is it about Marvel that, that has you come Right. Back? I mean, I guess it's the same thing that I've hit on more than once already. It's just the relatable characters that you that hmm. you find something in common with in some form or fashion, written by classic creators, um, you know, that, that tells solid stories, whether it be long form or short form or however you want it. And it's just, it's just continuously good. Mm. And there's something there for everybody, whether you like the small scale stuff or the big Epic stuff, um, you know, you know, quick plug for the latest run of X-Men they got going with Jonathan Hickman is amazing. Um, but I mean, there's, there's just something there for everybody. And, you know, it's, it's great characters that they've continued to build on for, I mean, you know, however long, you know, that these characters have existed, they keep evolving the characters, they keep changing them, they keep, you know, keeping them updated, and they they, they stay good, they stay relevant, and uh, they, they stay readable, and that's I guess that's why I keep coming back. Yeah, I mean, the tagline that Marvel always puts on there is putting the character back in comics, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing, because I mean, and, and we didn't talk about this when we talked about Spider-Man, but that's the thing. Spider-Man was the comic where Stanley had the brain flash of Peter Parker is more important than Spider-Man. Right. Right. You know, like the, the human, the, the you know, because, you know, superheroes were usually like the human identity is just an excuse for how this person gets around when they're not beating up criminals. Right. You know, like. Right. But, but Peter Parker was like, this is the character you're invested in. You know, his travails of his aunt is sick and he wants a girlfriend and all that. And the superhero side is more of like the diversion. Right. It's not the core essential of the of the book. Right, and then the uh, the MCU, you know, echoed a lot of that. Echoed a lot of that same mindset where they invested in these characters long term, and you, of course, you, we all know the success they enjoyed because of it. All right, so Joe, what is what is the quintessential Marvel element that keeps you coming back? Marvel to me, from the start of my Marvel reading, they seemed like the cool kids. Mm. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, which is um, now that I now that it came <laughs> my mouth. Uh, it, uh, no, the cool kids has a very negative connotation, but it seemed like Marvel and DC really. Of course, everybody else, tons of other people have done superhero comics, but Marvel and DC are superhero mm -hmm. comics. And when I started, DC was doing, you know, um, uh, Jimmy Olsen was turning into a giant turtle, and. Um, <laughs> Superman, like Mark mentioned, was fighting a space cowboy, and and we didn't fight him. There was no fighting, um, <laughs> but it was. It, but meanwhile, DC, uh, meanwhile, Marvel was doing, uh, you know, the Son of Satan yeah. and the Defenders and the Incredible Hulk, and uh, there was something just so interesting about everything Marvel was doing and this giant world universe that they are creating that they're still adding to today that more or less has been consistent for like since the 40s and maybe not consistent but it has there's been a steady through line mm -hmm. of everything they've done and now it has translated into this gigantic live action thing that we all of us read about when we were youngins and now everybody knows about marvel and thor and rocket raccoon and we can go 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, we were reading about that 30 years ago. Good job. <laughs> so Welcome I, to the yeah. party, pal. Exactly. Marvel, I guess what I'm saying is Marvel makes me feel superior to everyone else. <laughs> the superior Joe Crow. Okay. Yeah, superior. <laughs> All right, so Mark, what is the what is it about Marvel that gets you to come back? It's uh uh it's it's similar what the what the guy said heroes with problems you know mm. uh and and no more so than spider-man uh that character really resonated for me in such a strong way as a kid and, and even as an adult you know where you know we're all just sort of faking it and hoping that no one notices um i adored from the get-go the notion that these guys had feet of clay Mm. That they could stumble, that they wouldn't get it right. I was fascinated with the idea that, uh, you know, I I was around when Iron Man uh, lost his company because uh, he was an alcoholic, mm. right? Yeah. yeah. Fascinating stuff, you know. And as a kid, you know, that, that was stuff that I understood. It resonated with me. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed the – and I love the fact that, you know, Spider-Man always had girlfriend problems. Mm. You know, that was – like it was bad enough that his aunt was sick, but you know, uh, and, and, and Peter would always have girls that, that, that liked him, but he just, you know, he, he had this other thing he had to do, you know, fascinating. Um, but, uh, the, the fact that these heroes felt more relatable to me and, and even, and maybe sometimes, especially the ones that were different for me, you mm-hmm. know, um, I found that I could relate more readily to the Marvel characters. Uh, like I have more in common with Luke Cage than I did with Superman. Mm. Yeah. And so, so for me, that relatability, uh, as a kid made me feel, I, I never felt like I was talked down to or that I was, um, uh, made to feel like this was, this was kid stuff. In some cases I felt like I was getting away with something. So, so those, yeah, those exactly. problems and those, those, um, those those sometimes uh, uh, crudely sophisticated stories uh, were a big part of my creative DNA and a, and a big part of what uh, I always think of when I think of Marvel Comics, even at their most convoluted now and with all the the stuff that's uh, that's cluttering up the the current marketplace. I look at something like Miles Morales and go, "Cool, they're still doing mm. it." I look at I look at uh, Ms. Marvel and go, yeah. "Cool." That still matters. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like so that so to me that that message has never gone away. That's always been there, and uh, that they'll always have my respect uh, and my and my love for that. Right? Yeah. There. I mean, mine's kind of similar to you guys, but I'm gonna I'm gonna mention my like game changing moment. So I came in through the cartoons, and in the second episode of the X Men animated series. They have to leave um, Morph, who was a very minor character in the comics, Morph the Changeling. They have to leave Morph behind uh, because the Sentinels are overrunning them, and Morph dies because of that. Now, that's, 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 that's right there, but not enough for that. They get back, and they had had to like knock Wolverine out to drag him away just because he wasn't going to retreat. When Wolverine comes to and he finds out what happened... He decks Cyclops. 
And I'm like, this is a, this is a, you know, because, you know, I grew up watching Super Friends, right? <laughs> you know, like, hello, chum, you know, and everybody's all friends with each other and everybody talks in this dialogue that's like really just like we are the superhero, you know, deep voice and, you know, no, no emotion, really. And, um, you know, we, we, we have these characters that are like real people. They have conflicts, you know, they, they, they argue with each other. They have to make life and death decisions. And from that moment, I became a fan of X-Men and through X-Men became a fan of Marvel because this was not a story that talked down to me. This wasn't a, oh, kids might be watching this. We can't have violence because maybe kids might learn violence from it. We can't have death because maybe that'll scare some little kid and they can't sleep. You know, that's a lot of cartoons I grew up with, right? And going to the comics and seeing that, hey, the comics are the same level of storytelling, if not better, you know, level of storytelling. So it's that realism, that relatability of the character, even though their powers or the situations might be outlandish that Will talked about. But it's also the idea of, you know, kind of like what you were talking about, Mark, of these guys have problems, but the the essential element to me is they've got problems, but they always are trying to do the right thing. You know, Peter's got problems, but he doesn't usually let them get in the way of him saving people. And if it ever does, if there's ever a moment when he thinks about giving up the Spider-Man costume or whatever, that becomes something that eats him up inside because he does have that conscience and he has that sense of responsibility. So I like the morality of the Marvel character because it's easy when your life is perfect and you have the powers, uh, you know, of, of a god like Superman to, to be good. It's hard when your life sucks. And that, to me, makes it fascinating. You know, like, to, to maintain that morality and to maintain that sense of goodness, even when your life is falling apart. And so that's, that's what I really appreciate about the fact that Marvel's characters are more real quote-unquote in the sense of having feet of clay and things of that nature so yeah so um yeah guys this has been a a load of fun i have had a lot of fun reminiscing with you guys talking a little bit about the history and background there is so much more this book that i read i mean because it covers 80 years i mean you do kind of skim through the details but it's 400 and uh, 37 pages. It's, it's all really entertaining stuff. I mean, even getting into the stuff when like Perlmutter took over comics and, you know, sending death threats with old Testament quotes and stuff like that. It's, (laughs) there are some weird off the wall fun stories in here. So, um, uh, so yeah. Um, but let's uh, say our goodbyes and uh, let people know where they can find us online. So um, let's start with you, Mark. Uh, love the love the topic. Really good to spend a little uh, virtual time uh, with Joe, who I do not hang out with nearly enough and miss terribly. Indeed. 
Um, but uh, you can find me. I've got uh, a couple of blogs. The Serious Life blog is uh, Mark the Aging Hipster. Uh, if you Google that and put Finn's Wake, it'll pop right up. Uh, you can also find me on uh, Confessions of a Reformed RPGer or RPG Confessions uh, Blogspot. Um, and that's me talking about games, uh, Guns and Dragons, uh, old stuff, new stuff, some reviews, a little bit of everything. And of course, uh, GentlemanNerds.com. Uh, I am one of the Gentleman Nerds, and uh, that's where I do my uh, uh, most of my time. So uh, if you guys want to find me there, you can. You can also find me on Twitter, where I am an infrequent presence because I hate Twitter. i totally hear you on that one um uh will why don't you say goodbye and let people know where they can find you good night internet until we meet again you can find me on facebook and periodic episodes of the 42 cast all right and joe why don't you say goodbye and let people know where they can find you uh you can also find will at the same place you can find me (laughs) and and also you nathan and someday mark at dragon cons American sci-fi classics track where um, facebook.com slash groups slash American sci-fi classics where we talk about this stuff in person all the time and we talk about this stuff all year round not just at convention time and we have a community there a bullpen if you will where, <laughs> where we, we, we all just hang out it's such a positive cool place and I, it's, it's, it's just good stuff. I love doing it, um, um, with my partner, Gary Mitchell and tons of other guys and gals. Uh, that's a very seventies way to put mm. it, but, um, uh, it, it's, it's just, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, a, it's just a blast. And so, um, I'm also on the Instagrams at Yojo Crow. You can find me on Facebook talking about my daughter leaving the basement window <laughs> open for me to get home. And um, so, uh, and um, I'm tickled to death to get to uh, hang out with Mark and Will. I haven't seen you in what, a month? Dang it. Right. Yeah, it's been a while. House. Will, just drive to my house. Can I'm on my way. <laughs> right. and, leave, it, uh, leave a basement window open for me. Uh, oh, it's open. open right yeah. Now. Oh, there you go. Right on. All right. But I will, I will see you guys very soon. And yes. thank you guys for having me on on board. Best, best of oh, it, guys. Oh yeah, no no problem, Joe and Will and and Mark. Also, thank you so much. Thank you all so much for being on the uh, podcast today because this has been uh, a great you know time talking about Mark. You thank guys you, are sir. awesome. Thank you guys. So that's it for our episode on the history of Marvel Comics. What did you think of the episode? Do you like the topic? Do, would you like us to do more topics like it? Did you like our guests? You can let us know in a variety of ways. One way is to email us at everything at 42cast.com. You can also go to our website at 42cast.com, leave comments on any of the episodes there. You can also go to our Facebook at facebook.com slash 42cast. You can also leave us reviews on Stitcher Radio or iTunes. You can also tweet to us at 42cast. So there's a lot of different ways. Oh yeah, there's also Instagram now. You can leave us comments on any of our Instagram posts as well, including the one for this episode. Now, I asked about whether or not you like the topic, and one of the reasons that I want to know that, especially in this case, is we've been considering changing the format around, and we are kind of polling 
First, we've been polling internally with our 42 cast regulars or irregulars or whatever you want to call them. But I also wanted to poll you guys and find out what you think, what would you like to hear more from us? The sort of five things that I'm really interested in doing a deeper dive in are Doctor Who, Star Wars, Marvel Comics, anime, or video games. So I'm thinking of either doing another segment or some sort of, you know, every so many episodes we'll have an episode devoted to one of those topics. It's still kind of in the infancy stage, but I kind of want to know what people want to listen to most, what you most want to hear us comment on. So if you could respond to us at any of those places, either sending an email or leaving feedback on the episode posts on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or even on the website for this episode and just letting us know, hey, this is what you know I'm most interested in out of what you suggested, that's perfect. Also, if you want to leave us reviews on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, that's fine, too, because, you know, <laughs> especially with Apple, they use that data as far as how many reviews we get help us to get promoted through their system. So obviously, I'd love to have the 42 cast promoted more. And if you're listening to this, you should probably want that, too. So, <laughs> so something to think about anyway. Also wanted to remind everybody about the ESO Patreon. That's a way for you to support all the shows on the network, including the 42 cast. There's all kinds of tiers that they have that give you all kinds of different perks. You know, some of them allow you access to exclusive episodes. There's even an exclusive ESO podcast that's only for Patreon subscribers. There's a lot of different things, so check that out. Go to patreon.com slash ESO network, and if you have any ability to contribute, we would all appreciate it. So I think I got everything out of the way that I wanted to talk about at the beginning of the show. There's not much else to report, so join us back next week when Skylar Samuels will be joining us. Yes, it's another interview, this time with a celebrity on a show that was on the air recently. Skylar Samuels is, of course, one of the stars of The Gifted. She also was on Nine Lives of Chloe King as the star for that show. She was on the series Scream Queens. She's been a lot of different shows going back quite a few years. She's been an actress since she was a little kid. So it was really great connecting with Skylar, talking with her, talking about The Gifted, talking about her career in general, and that was a lot of fun. So definitely come back here next time so that you can check that out. And until then, this is Nathan, signing off. You have been listening to the 42Cast, copyright 2020. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42cast.com. Theme music is Sharper Swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42Cast is a proud member of the ESO Network. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.